We come to it at last, the great battle of our time. Whoa, interesting choice of words. Last week, we shared this metaphor, and since then, the cultural struggles about today's topic have heated up even more. This is mainly because of our world's possibly fastest growing religion, which today we are calling sexualityism. That is a strong belief in one's own sexual identity, which usually leads to many, many problems. One guest who has experience with these beliefs and taken some heat for her perspectives has joined us today to enjoin this fantastical foe. How might this new religion threaten not just biblical Christianity, but even some fantastical fiction made by Christian creators? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. We will try to cool you down in the studio because it's getting a little hot out there. I'm Steamer Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parents. And I'm Zachary Russell. This is episode 156, Why Does Sexualityism Threaten Christian Fiction? And we're joined again by a special guest, Bethel McGrew. Thank you so much for having me. It's fantastic to join you all today. Bethel has arrived once again via the DeLorean time machine that she used to enter the studio in episode 88. That, by the way, is probably required listening before you go into this show, as is our episode about church trauma a few episodes back that started off uh, this sobering series that we've done in the podcast throughout the month of March, just spilling over into April about fantastical foes that might threaten Christian fiction, that could threaten Christian fiction, or in this case, we believe inevitably do threaten Christian fiction. Let's get to some Christian fiction in a moment that's not under threat. That is Sponsor One, Oasis Family Media. They're the owners of Enclave Publishing, and this month they have a new book out. It's a book four of the Drosseran saga from author Ronan Kindig called War of Torment, a space opera that I believe concludes this series, at least for now. Here's the back cover description. The time for peace is over. Now he demands vengeance. They followed him back, against his will, against his intention. Now enemies threaten from every direction. Amidst it all, Marco Dusan struggles to lead his people, to help them survive, even mayhap win the war. He will take any advantage to even the odds, but only after tragedy strikes does he learn just how much he's willing to sacrifice. Enclave Publishing presents War of Torment, book four in the Drosseran Saga by Roni Kendig. It releases April the 11th from Enclave Publishing. The audiobook is available from Oasis Audio. The book is available wherever books are sold. Visit enclavepublishing.com or see our show notes for more information about War of Torment. Meanwhile, our non-tormented guest, Bethel McGrew, has certainly seen some what people would call culture wars, but we're not just talking about culture wars here. There's some much deeper things going on. We're going to disclaim all of that in our ever full concession stand. Actually, it's kind of an all-you-can-eat buffet. But before we get to that, Bethel McGrew is a high school teacher, math PhD, and widely published freelance writer. Her work has appeared in First Things, National Review, The Spectator, World Opinions, and many other national and international outlets. Her Substack, Further Up, is one of the top paid newsletters in faith and spirituality on the platform. She has also contributed to two essay anthologies on Jordan Peterson. When not writing social criticism, she enjoys writing about literature, film, music, and history. You can follow Bethel McGrew on Twitter at bmcgrewvy, or you can follow her into the studio. Thanks for coming, Bethel. And we're going to have an amazing discussion about 
sexualityism. Um, we're going to define that, I promise, uh, in just a moment. Why are you here, by the way? I mean, I know why you're here, but what in the <laughs> world, before we get into this, like what in the world got you into writing about this topic? What drew you specifically to this uh, among your other, many other uh, creative and uh, mathematical skills even? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think, I think really it goes back to my mother's example, actually, because, you know, when she wasn't being a, a scholar, philosopher, writer in her own right, she was, she was sort of a political pundit. Back at the blogging days, she she had a sort of a, 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 a sort of a band blogger style, a, a group of like minded people who who wrote about this sort of thing and kept an eye on the culture. You know that was sort of going back to her own roots, growing up in the heyday of the religious right. You know, I think she actually marched with Jerry Falwell Sr. at one point. So you know, this this is like very much in in her her blood and her DNA, and it's it's something she's always written about very astutely. So growing up, I, I read the commentary that she wrote very closely, and then it, you know, just naturally gave me insight and gave me the the desire to speak into it myself. And so, in a way, you know, I feel like I'm I'm sort of carrying on her torch, and I, I feel like I, in some sense, I'm a child of, of the religious right in that way, which uh, you know gets a lot of flack. It, you know, people don't like the religious right. These days, they, they want to portray it as like the uncool Christians, but I think there's there's a sense in which we need to sort of carry their spirit into the the present day with the, the present challenges. Well, that could lead us straight to the concession stand. Uh, let's open that up here, Zach. It is an all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh, <laughs> there's all kinds of menu items here. I probably won't even be able to touch on this vast selection. But first of all. I'll just pitch this uh, softball to you, Zach. Is this a political show? Are we talking politics again? Because we're talking nope. about sexualityism. No, why? Why not? As usual on this podcast, we don't talk about political movements, candidates, laws. Uh, this is not where we discuss the finer details about how our society applies rules to these things. We're, we're talking about the theological side and also the cultural side, but you know, just the overall or the overarching moral issues at work here. Everyone has a moral vision about this topic. We, we have our own particular moral vision, uh, which uh, hopefully you, our listener, will uh, enjoy our conversation about this and contribute uh, and feedback if you'd like. But um, yeah, we're, we have a very pretty strong opinion about all of this, so we'll get into that. All right. Here's some Salisbury steak. Here's some of that cheap uh, hospital-style macaroni and cheese. <laughs> uh, here's some of that crab stuff over here you get at the, uh, at the buffet over on the salad bar. All kinds of menu items here. I mentioned at the top of this show, uh, first concession, that yes, it's getting a little hot out there. I just want to note, I think all of our listeners will hopefully trust us by this point, but we still feel we need to win and, and confirm trust. We started planning this series about fantastical foes uh, several months ago. A lot of talking amongst the, the Lorehaven staff creators, uh, deciding that we, we were seeing a lot of potential and or actual threats. Uh, against Christian imagination, against the kinds of fantastical fiction that we would like to see at Lorehaven, that we want to review positively because we want these stories to grow and help disciple readers, not just be a distraction or a useful tool for something. Uh, it is just by providential coincidence, if that's even a thing, uh, that this episode about sexuality lands, uh, at least as of release date, uh, in a very difficult week in the United States. Uh, there was a shooting, lots of controversy about it, the identity of the shooter. We're not going to get into all of those things here, but we recognize that there's some overlap uh, with the uh, with the heated rhetoric that's going on. 
uh, largely on one side, I would say. We, we definitely take a position in favor of the victims here, but we also are aware that these topics can be very sensitive. I would also say, too, I kind of somewhat recently became aware that I think a lot of people do get sick and tired of what they would call the culture wars. Uh, I would dispute that label just a little bit. I think the war is primarily spiritual and not cultural. But I've noticed a lot of people just get very tired of those and just don't want to talk about it. Maybe you're into fiction or something else because it helps you escape from those issues for a while. I think there was a time, uh, Bethel, when, when I would think, well, like, you guys are just lazy or cowardly. Um, you guys are just not aware of what's going on. So the solution is I just need to yell at you more about what's going on. Wake up, sheeple. You need to understand uh, this is an actual attack on Christianity. But I mean, some people I think are um, not very strong and just don't want to be uh, to engage with these topics. But I think some people too, uh, Bethel, are just tired and depressed and kind of in survival mode. Uh, and so I would hope that folks like that uh, maybe don't listen to the show or maybe we'll just hit just that right tone that helps you get into this topic. But if that's not you, if you're just in more survival mode uh, and you don't have the space for other battles, I would say don't worry about it. Just rest up. Uh, but please, 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 literally for Christ's sake, uh, do not oppose of those Christians who are gifted with the time and strength and emotional fortitude uh, to engage these issues. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think about that in my own writing because um, I, I, I do think that I have, like, like you said, I do think I have the aptitude and the, the ability to speak into this particular area. And, you know, sometimes other Christians will tell me my tone is bad or whatever. Uh oh, tone police. Woo, 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 woo. Yeah. Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> um, but, I, I feel like for myself, I feel like I've actually been pretty careful and, and achieved a pretty good balance in my own writing of, you know, yeah, I'll, I, I deal with these things as they come up because I think they're really important and a lot of people aren't really speaking well into them. Um, but I also write about a lot of stuff that I just want to write about, um, you know, because when we talk about conservatism, we need to talk about what, what we're conserving and, you know, we need to actually be able to enjoy all that good stuff that we talk about, like like literature or music or art or whatever. Um, so, you know, I don't necessarily write a hot take on every single thing that comes across my dashboard because, you know, maybe that week I wanted to write about this movie instead or whatever. Um, and so I think it, it is important to, to have a balanced diet in that respect as a writer. And, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily into the sort of all raw me all the time uh, diet that, that you do sometimes see in other contexts. <laughs> right. Well, I think, you know, th this topic is, is really just part of a much larger concern I have of the evangelical world today, which is the two topics of syncretism and pragmatism. So what are those? So syncretism is we, we are becoming part of the culture that we are trying to reach. So we are sacrificing our values, our beliefs, our doctrines, even Bible verses, even chapters or writers of the Bible in order to reach the culture. And I really think that this is just to be liked by the culture or to succeed in you know, secular kind of ventures, especially the arts world, which we'll get into. Uh, and I think the other one is pragmatism. Um, and this can go either way. Uh, th this can go in a conservative or a liberal direction with this topic, which is interesting to me. But pragmatism is another hidden danger in a, in a very large topic that can lead into error. Sexualityism is just, you know, it, it's a subset, I feel like, of these larger dangers. 
Um, but, but really it's just about who is defining reality, who is defining anthropology, who's defining, you know, the nature of God and his, his purpose for us. I mean, there, there was a, a well-known uh, clip going around this week that, uh, where a person said, well, I was, um, I was made in her image, her being God. It's like, well, okay. So that you've got a very unique view of God and man. And so where does that come from? So th- that's what this is ultimately about. It, it's about a, a, a battle of worldviews. And, um, you know, I, I will just put my cards on the table and say, look, people are not made straight or gay or cis or trans. We're made male and female. And God is the one that defines what those categories are. There's something, there's meaning that's built into that. There's purpose that's built into that. And we have to go to the Lord, to scripture, to find out what that meaning is. If we fall into syncretism, we let culture define that for us. And we can't do that. We do. Zach, I think that's uh, totally appropriate to say that there are some larger concerns here. Uh, Going even further back uh, to the book of Genesis, where you have the record of the serpent tempting uh, Adam and Eve for the very first time uh, with the promise of a kind of divinity. You shall know good and evil. You shall be able to define reality. You shall have the power of God uh, to create what you want to be. Uh, The devil there is tempting the original humans with a sort of uh, what Carl Truman would call expressive individualism. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, We are going to cover all that stuff uh, in our three chapters discussion here. We're not even there yet. We're still snacking on concessions. Uh, Real quick, too. Uh, I've said this at the beginning of each of the other fantastical foes in this series. Uh, We talked about sentimentalism in our last episode. And then in our first fantastical foe, we covered deconstructionism. So both of those topics relate to this one. But even before that, episode 152, very important listen, we talked about church trauma. Zach and Bethel, I think that a lot of people, Christians especially, are soft on this issue, uh, have been willing to compromise or go into syncretism like nobody starts off going i think i'm going to compromise the bible today well some people might if they're really really determined or really angry but a lot of people i think are just deceived by this fantastical foe because he comes along and he says you know that hurt you felt from the church back home you know the hurt you felt when your family didn't react in the right way to so and so i can fix that for you i'm going to be a kinder gentler christianity i'm going to give you purpose in your creative journey Uh, I am going to help you be nicer to the world. And guess what? Through you, oh, gentle Christian, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. If you will simply come along and compromise with this belief here, you can now be the good cop Christian as opposed to the bad cop, moral majority, religious right, Falwell types that we had uh, back in the 70s and 80s. The bad people, Bethel, sorry, they were all very uniformly bad. My mom has horns and a tail. You're absolutely yes. right. Yeah. And I mean, that's what we've seen. And, and I, I think, you know, we should definitely dive into some, you know, some of the revoice queer treasure uh, type stuff that, that I've been taking heat for most recently, because that, that's mm, exactly what that is. And um, if you look at the, the Memorial Presbyterian Church, that was the first church that uh, to host the revoice conference. Recently, they voted to leave the PCA and a big uh, factor in that was this this arts outreach ministry that they were trying to do this this chapel ministry where they were working with local LGBT artists uh, who would come and use the chapel property to put on plays um, and I mean sometimes it was like literally uh, you know a guy in drag getting up and, and doing a play and they were trying to justify this exactly like you're saying like well we're we're being missional you know this is 
how how else are we supposed to to reach people? We got to meet people where where they are. We got to prove that we're you know willing to open up our our property to them for for their plays. Apparently, you know, this is like the, the proof of good Christianity. You know, you know, and it's interesting that same exact dynamic happened about twenty years ago after nine eleven. A lot of churches said um, we got to reach the Muslim community, so that means we need to bring Muslims into the church, have them tell us what Islam really is, how they're, you know, how it's not, you know, Al- they're not all Al-Qaeda. Okay. And that's, that's fine and all, but it went to like, well, we should have discussions or debates like in church and, and have them like present their side of why they, and it's like, okay, I, I, I get some of that, but is the church the right location for that? I, I totally agree in reaching people for the Lord with the gospel, but I, I think there's some blinders that get put on in the midst of ministry. And, and look, this is not a new thing. Like if you read, um, if you go through the perspectives on the world, Christian movement, excellent, excellent course. This has happened all throughout time. <laughs> this is, it's no different what's happening today than what's happened in the history of missions. Mm, yeah. Well, and I think there, you know, the philosophy of missionalism and missions in general, I mean, you, you could find even in, in how, how you approach foreign missions, that there's there's certain philosophies of doing that where it's like you gotta kinda go along with people to a certain extent so as not to rock the boat too much. And it's just like, well, okay, but at what point does that just become pure syncretism and you gotta stop right, it? You know? right. Exactly. Well, some people get into missions or, or have a missional impulse for different reasons. Uh certainly it's obedience to Christ in the Great Commission on the way up at the end of the book of Matthew. Uh, but also, it, it takes some empathy. If you're a missionary, uh, you want to reach these people, you want to love them. Um, but empathy can be weaponized. And I think that particularly uh, Christians who have um, a survivor story of some kind or feel that they do, or who empathize with those who have survivor stories, uh, some activists, bad actors, can come along and weaponize that empathy and turn it against us. Uh, those who have been in real instances of spiritual abuse know this well. Uh, if you had a shady pastor or youth pastor or somebody at the church back home uh, who did something terrible and then someone came along and said, well, you just need to sweep this under the rug for the good of the church and our reputation in the world, that is weaponizing your empathy yeah. against you. Don't you care for people? Well, it's pragmatism, yeah, but it's the wrong kind. Don't you care for people? It's all the argument about what people are going to say. Uh, I'm reminded, though, of the account of Saul, uh, the new king of Israel, uh, who was going to sacrifice a bunch of animals in order to uh, please the Lord. Like, well, I'm going to sacrifice to please the Lord. And the prophet Samuel comes along and says, no, you were told to do this and obedience is more important than sacrifice. Uh, In other words, there's a quick exegesis there. Uh, Saul was trying to be more spiritual than God. God said, do X. And Saul said, well, I think it'd be more spiritual if I do Y. (laughs) Uh, He wasn't trying to be a missionary there, Saul, but I do find some false spirituality that is at issue in some Christian compromises on this issue. And as a result, it's going to uh, or could infect our fantasy, our fiction, our imagination, uh, especially because a lot of Christian creators are very empathetic. Uh, colloquially, you're very right-brained. Uh, you're open to displays of emotion in artwork, whether it's plays or, or fiction or movies. And so someone can come along uh, with the sentimentalism we discussed in our last episode, appeal to your emotion, shortcast, uh, shortcut past your rationality, and then suddenly you start to believe something that you previously knew you weren't supposed to believe. That goes double when we're no longer living in what we discussed with Bethel in episode 88. We're no longer living in a neutral world. 
where culture, largely, uh, the trendsetters, uh, the folks running the place, generally, we're no longer living in the world where they're neutral toward Christianity. Uh, there is overt hostility toward Christianity, and the realistic Christian fan or creator needs to avoid claiming otherwise, or else you will fall into sentimentalism. You'll be cleaning up the world and pretending that it's a very nice place, when in fact it is not. And I think the events of this week, Stephen, has, has shown this in very clearly. To my knowledge, this is the first time we've had a mass shooting where afterwards the leaders of politics, uh, the economic, cultural, and other leaders are sympathizing with the identity group of the perpetrator and not the victims. Yep. You know, who is being invited to the White House? Not the hero cops that stopped the attack. Uh, not the families of the victims, but the members of the identity group of the perpetrator. And so th this is a very dark moment for me personally. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm sure we have all kinds of thoughts and feelings about that. But I, I think that's the clearest example that we're living in an openly hostile world. Right. And, and what's been telling, I think, is to look at, you know, certain kinds of Christian feeds in the wake of this. And so, you know, when, when I look, okay, what, I wonder what the founder of Revoice has to say about this. Oh, look, he's, he's talking about how, well, yes, this was evil, but we also need to talk about the devastating rejection that this shooter suffered from her parents. I'm thinking, wait, what? And then you go look it up. It's like, okay, so her parents were Christians. They were she was good. living with them. She was they were living supporting with them. Her. They did not kick her out from all no. I can tell. Yeah. You know, she was one of these people who has a failure to launch, which, okay, you know, no, no shame in that, but her parents were very generous and, and she was under their roof at age 28. And they simply told her, no, you can't dress in men's clothing around the house. No, we're not going to address you with your preferred pronouns or whatever. And Mr. Revoice founder is like, what, what's he doing? He's, he's Mr. Empathetic Christian. And so, you know, he's, he has this deep felt need to talk about how devastatingly rejected she was and that this needs really needs to be part of the discourse here. Um, and so then, you know, I, I mixed it up pretty sharply saying, just calling that out, saying, look, this is dangerous rhetoric. This is completely inappropriate, manipulative talk. This is not how you stop murder suicides. Okay. You know, exactly. Yeah. It's toxic empathy. It's, yeah. you know, it, it is. And it's to an extent understandable. Uh, and we'll talk in chapter two about some uh, not so helpful Christian responses to situations like this. I can, however, uh, hear the voices of many listeners, or at least maybe a few listeners, maybe who happened by because uh, the topic, uh, the name of this episode uh, might stand out a little bit. And that is by design. I will admit it. I usually write the titles for these. I can hear people asking, well, why, why are we talking about this? Why, why do we have to talk about this now? I want to talk about fiction. I want to talk about dragons and spaceships. Okay, here's why we're talking about it. Your stories about dragons and spaceships, even from Christians, are going to start reflecting some of these values if we're not careful. Uh, I feel some measure of responsibility just as a fan with any hint of a platform uh, to do a little gatekeeping, uh, not against uh, ideas of particular writers. I, I want everybody to sell books and get famous, okay? But I do believe that some ideas are specifically harmful, harmful to fiction, harmful to Christian creativity. If this were a parallel Earth, Earth 666, uh, where some uh, cabal came along, a religious group uh, started advocating for explicit expressions of racism or other uh, institutionalized sins, greedism, 
Other isms, a, a good thing turned bad, which is idolatry. Uh, if they started uh, legislating for these or putting a bunch of these in TV shows and expecting us to at first laugh at them and then applaud them and then punish those who don't applaud, uh, then we'd be talking about that now. Fantastical Truth and Earth 666 would talk about that instead, but we're living in the real world. This is Earth 1. This is the hand that we're dealt. Uh, even as fantastical fans, we believe that Christians must reckon with reality. And also, I think it just helps. I, I'm fin finally coming in my concessions here, folks. I think it just helps, too, uh, to set the table going forward uh, for Lorehaven and for any of the, the creatives who are part of our platform here. Um, we don't want to smile upon these things, and, and we want to part amicably with anyone who has a different idea about these things, but I'd rather have that discussion honestly. That's why we're being very open with, uh, with terms here. I, I thought when I was outlining this, okay, maybe we'll be a little more subtle, uh, we'll be a little bit more artful about it. No, I think there is a time for plain spokenness about this. You can be more artful about it in the art. I don't know if I'd call a podcast an art, uh, like a play or a novel or something like that. By the way, I don't mean that books, uh, stories ought not have characters who struggle with these issues. I absolutely would love to see more Christian-made fantasy and other fiction where people are struggling outwardly with these issues. I want characters um, trying to figure out what to do with their same-sex attraction uh, or, or some kind of a surgery that was done to them. Like, what, why don't we have more effectively you know, eunuchs like the one from the Book of Acts uh, in, in Christian stories? We're going to see more of these scenarios in real life. But what we don't want to see and what Lorehaven would not uh, look positively on would be propaganda. I don't want Christian stories or secular stories that are selling this as if it's the most wonderful thing. That is sentimentalism, and that is deconstructing the foundation of human relationships that God has put in the universe. God specifically says in Isaiah 520, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. If someone is calling evil good and they believe that it is good and they believe that we're evil for saying that something is good, uh, then maybe we ought to part ways amicably. You know, maybe you unsubscribe, but I'd rather you subscribe, of course, and that we engage with this with compassion, uh, with creativity, uh, but also with some solid foundation in apologetics and these cultural conflicts. This is real, folks. Real people are being deceived into destroying their own human nature and now going out and destroying other human lives as well. And if human nature is under attack, then so will be human creations. Stories and songs fantasy, fantastical fiction, and Christian fantastical fiction. Right. Well, and I mean, it's, it was really through story and through creative media that sexualityism came to be the dominant um, force here to, exactly. to begin with. And I mean, you know, you, you can go back and see people planning this out. I, I can remember, so I don't know if you guys ever listened to a radio show called Life at the Pond. Oh, that uh, that was with uh, Chuck uh, Chuck Swindoll, right? It was his ministry that did that. It was an no, 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 drama? no, 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 no. That this 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 is a this was like a, a fun kids kids radio show with with like pond creatures um, and and stuff. It, that, so the, the the writer he tried to make it as a screenwriter in Hollywood in the '90s, and uh, Charlie Richards, that's his name, um, and he had some talent. And there was a gay producer who kind of took a friendly interest, mentoring interest in him, and and they. They taught some, and this gay producer was sort of like one of the architects of create creative sexualityism. I mean, he kind of wrote some of those early shows that started introducing uh, these sorts of characters. Oh, fascinating! And, the yeah, not like so kind of, secret agenda before it was cool. Okay, yeah, it, exactly. 
And so um, it emerged that, that Charlie had done some work with focus on the family. So this gay producer guy took him to lunch. He said, look, you know, I like you. This isn't really personal, but I can't really work with you or, or look at your stuff going forward because you worked for a focus on the family. And that's kind of it. And you know, Charlie's just kind of stunned, like, okay. And this was, again, this was the 90s. And so that was his little sort of preview of negative world. Um, and I, I thought that was really fascinating when I read that in his story. Because, you know, here's a guy who's he's a, he's creative, he's talented. Um, you know, he, he wants to do objectively good work. And here he was being shut out for his ideology. And, it, you know, it was explicitly, obviously, because of the stance that Focus had taken on sexual ethics. Um, so that, that to me is a really interesting story. So then now what you see when, when Christians themselves are doing this is it's, it's just that, I mean, they're just taking the same formula and, and now they're propagating it, but, you know, wrapped up in a, in a quote unquote Christian package, but it, it's just the same propaganda that got us to where we are in the first place. So now that we've repeated the word, which, by the way, I think is my made-up word, sexualityism. Let's go to chapter one. I've what started using it now. Sexualityism? It's a really useful word. <laughs> yes, thank you. On. And it is time now to define this. And by the way, um, this wasn't in my notes, but I thought, okay, well, I made up a word. This is not the science's word. Uh, no person in a lab coat or a consortium somewhere came up with this. But hey, everybody's making up words about this stuff, folks. Uh, you, you're, you're taking a word that originally referred to you know, like a paramecia dividing, and that's how it reproduces. And now you're using that to uh, uh, name a particular idea about sexual identity. Um, asexual is, is a word there. There's all kinds of other, but demisexual, what, what is that one? Like you're only into smart people. Uh, there's all kinds of X-sexual, Y-sexual. Like all of these are made up words, you guys. They're, this is all social science at best. Uh, it's, it's people coming up with things. And that's okay. It's okay for humans to make up words and see if it catches on. So I'm giving it my own try with the word sexualityism. So at least for my part, I'd be interested in how y'all uh, would, would, would uh, define this. I was trying to come up with a written definition uh, that uh, is fair, and it also kind of roughly applies to all. I think that this is the honoring of one's own sexual identity above all else. Uh, no matter how you identify, it's a form of idolatry. You've taken a good thing, uh, your nature as a, as a sexual being uh, that God has created you to be, whether male or female. Uh, you can take that even as what you would call a straight person and say, well, this is who I am. I am straight. I am same-sex attracted or gay or whatever. Uh, I am trans. This is who I am. Everything else about me uh, is in some way subservient to that identity. I have taken a secondary thing, a, a gift of God or evolution or whatever, and I have made this primary. I think what, what helps at least with this starter definition, I think, is that it does level the playing field. Uh, that means that anyone can become, in a sense, a practicing member of this false religion of sexualityism. Uh, if I'm a, a billionaire who runs around with supermodels, for example, and is not a faithful husband to one wife, uh, I am also a practicing sexualityist. I have elevated this, what would have been a gift. I've taken it from the creator and said, no, this is not yours. I am not yours. I am my own, for I have bought me with a price. 
uh, this is evil. This is the same kind of sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. Not that the original sin was specifically a sexual sin, but it was a sin of human autonomy. It was a sin of a person saying, I am made in my own image, not God's image. So I do what I want. Uh, that applies to everyone. Uh, but at present, uh, we, we kind of culture just kind of gotten past this idea. Well, except for me too, which has some good things uh, about it. Some people would just rise against that and go, no, there are limits and of consent and all of that. Uh, but we're kind of long past the stage of just uh, getting over the idea of someone worshiping their own straight sexuality. Uh, that's past. I'd love to roll that back. Absolutely. All biblical Christians would. Uh, but even back then, for example, if you cheated on your spouse, culture would just sort of either ignore that or people would just kind of get awkward about it. But the adulterer lobby wasn't out there uh, trying to identify with their sin. It's like, I am a adulterer. I'm a fornicator American. This is my identity. Uh, they weren't seeking that level of cultural approval. It was still kind of a really shady thing to do. Unfortunately, we still have a uh, cultural memory of calling that a bad thing to do. Uh, we've also just finished uh, accepting culturally uh, the same-sex identity. Uh, another form of sexualityism is a big step for people to get used to that. And yet for a while, Bethel, and maybe you, maybe you can speak to this because you've, you've kept up uh, in a startling way. Uh, with some of the rhetoric of uh, the 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 gay agenda, what people used to call the gay agenda, I still don't want to call him gay. By the way, uh, Bethel, I want to sing "Deck the Halls" uh, without thinking about a rainbow flag somewhere. <laughs> uh, it's still perfectly good, you know, Charles Dickens kind of word that I really just don't want to see because I'm stubborn. I will just call it same-sex attraction. But for a while there, and there's still some people who identify as gay conservatives, even gay Christians. Uh, who weren't trying to stifle the competition. They were really sincerely, at least at first, hey, just just let me live with my partner. Let, let's live and let live. Um, I don't want to stamp out your religion. I just would like uh, you to respect me in the same way. But it is not that idea, that more libertarian approach uh, on the wane now. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I listen to a guy like Douglas Murray talk about this, it's really interesting. I love Douglas. He, you know great stuff. But I do think this is kind of a, a blind spot here because he, he'll he try and make this big distinction between gay and trans. Um, so he'll say, you know, the central moral argument of the gay rights movement was, look, uh, we just want to live our lives. So leave us alone to do that in peace. We weren't trying to redefine biology. We weren't trying to like change what words mean. And then I'm over here thinking, except marriage, marriage. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, except for that little word. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. But then he'll go on. But trans is this whole different ballgame because, you know, look how they're trying to. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think what you're hearing there is um, it's modernism versus postmodernism in a, in a way. Uh, I think you know, the whole LGB without the T movement is sort of the last gasp of um, modern hedonism, you could say, um, where, you know. We've left Christian morality behind. That that ship sailed a long time ago. Um, but hey, we're, you know, we we still have our biological categories, right? You know, we still have some idea, some grip on reality. Um, but I think the you know the, the problem is that once you start unraveling T loss or purpose, um, you know, what is what is the purpose of our sexuality? What is sexuality for? The sky really is the limit. And, and you can see how 
trans spins itself out of what began with with lesbian, gay, bisexual, and and I think there's a certain amount of of denial that, and and rewriting of history when you know self-styled moderate gays or moderate liberal gays go, hey, all we wanted was this, all we wanted was that, and you go, well, no, that's that's not actually true. It it was a big change. Kim Davis lost her job, you know. Oh, that was the uh, county clerk uh, or the the supervisor in um, I think uh, Northeast Kentucky, right? Because right. she didn't she didn't want to give licenses or something. Yeah. It was a red, uh, kind of red a county protest. and a red state. I mean, that, yes. that's just that's why we're not a neutral world. It, yeah. Exactly. Now you know Kim Kim was was painted very unsympathetically at the time, and she had divorce in her own past, which of course people made hay out of that. Um, uh, but you know, look fundamentally, at the end of the day, she still lost her job for having Christian views of sexuality, specifically same-sex sexuality. Um, and so I would kind of want to lean on guys like Douglas a little bit and say, look, you still wanted that world, right? You still wanted the world where a Kim Davis couldn't, couldn't do her job without handing out gay marriage licenses. Um, or, you know, I, I, I look at a guy like Dave Rubin. He's, he's another good example. And he and his partner are now announcing surrogate twins yay it's like hey, wait, yay wait what yeah what are we hey, hold where's on. the mom where's the where's mom, the mom? Guys? what are we yeah what are we it, cheering it's... what are we celebrating how is this any better than pete Buttigieg and and his guy um well it's because you say some conservative things on a on a, a talk show that's not good enough i think there is maybe a risk of a little complacency that you know because we have these guys who are sort of like friendly gays who are kind of kind of in a conservative corner but they're not really um there could be a tendency to sort of let stuff go. Yeah. So it's good to not do that. I, I think so much of this ties into our episode about deconstructionism, mm -hmm. where we talked about the movement of the last 60 or so years has been to claim that everything is socially constructed. So as we said, uh, that, that started with marriage. Marriage is socially constructed. There's no objective meaning to it. It's just whatever humans decide uh, it's not necessarily one man and one woman. It can be other arrangements. Well, once you go down that path, as you said, Bethel, everything starts unraveling. Yeah. So now we're seeing that the definition of ma male and female is unraveling. Um, just yesterday, I was in a conversation with someone where, you know, we were both kind of pointing out that the activists today are saying puberty is self socially constructed. That you can pause puberty. You you can ignore it. You can. You know, why are you forcing people to go through puberty? Like, right. how it's dare like, you? <laughs> like that, cre that creepy lady in Matt Walsh's documentary where she's like, it's like a song and you hit pause on the song, but you can always hit play again and it just yeah. picks right up where it left off. Except that's actually false medically. That's, right. that's not true. She's just <laughs> what lying. An absolutely. Yeah. Saruman, the wizard view yes, of nature, uh, just yeah. e exploiting your own body uh for like you can't pause that not really no it's it's like trying to pause going from crawling to walking there's a way that we're made and to deconstruct that is literally to try to make yourself a god uh and and rebuild reality in your own image that yeah that is and why I, this relates to imagination specifically because this is a disordered uh, this is a disordering of imagination yeah and you know as you said, Bethel, it's like the, the people that are, uh, you said the LGB without the T, right. it's like they're they're trying to hit the brakes at an arbitrary spot. And this is exactly. exactly the point that Michael Young, aka Wokel Distance, was making, saying to us is that 
this kind of mindset is the poison pill of Western civilization. And, and there's no, uh, I think his other phrases, there's no limiting reagent to this. It's there's a no limiting principle. Exactly. It's a universal right. acid. And exactly. so, you know, to my, to my friends in the cultural conservative secular community, I would just say, please think about this, that you, you can't just hit the stop button on this methodology from unraveling everything else. And it, it's the, it's the methodology itself that you've embraced to get these cultural victories for yourselves that we're seeing the logical endpoint of that in these other battles. So these are the results of this movement that I've been trying to call sexualityism. I'll ask in a moment how you all feel. Uh, I defined it, uh, any holes that you can see. I guess we've also just been talking a lot about the results that we see uh, and even named a few, uh, a few political leaders here, not in their office capacity, but just the fact by virtue that they're public figures promoting what is essentially a religious worldview, uh, we see the results. Uh, what, what we aren't talking about as much is that, yeah, the fact that this is, I mean, by not us, we're going to talk about it, but others are not talking about the fact that it is, it is I believe, a religious movement. Uh, and I think that uh, Carl Truman, uh, who's a, a pastor and author, a very, very scholarly author, um, I'm kind of playing at being a scholar here, folks, but it took me a while to get through his very uh, textbooky book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, there's, I would highly recommend that, but there's also a more popular version of that called Strange New World, which has nothing to do with the uh, Star Trek series. It's just a simplified version of how this expressive individualism got started, at least the modern version, with these French philosophers. Uh, a lot of the same names that Michael Young and us were talking about a few episodes ago who were kind of uh, had a lot of spare time and were thinking about words, man, and, and human nature, bro. And isn't just all <laughs> words and uh, what, what, what's going on with the system, man. And even uh, Percy Shelley, uh, the poet who is the husband of Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein, uh, helped get this started with his unorthodox view of human relationships. And then it seems to me in retrospect to be his uh, very high literary justification uh, for frankly undisciplined appetites. He, even in that uh, proto-form of this religious movement, wanted to behave as a god and redefine his own reality uh, and rebuild uh, humanity, uh, themes that, oddly enough, kind of got into Frankenstein there a little bit. I want to do an episode about Frankenstein sometimes, even though it's frankly boring and there's not nearly enough villagers with pitchforks. Um, I don't want to chase all these people with pitchforks, but they are to blame for their peace in putting this religion together. I think it goes back to some very old human impulses but you see this uh, almost cultural industrialization of sexualityism, especially with the internet. All these beliefs about deconstruction and postmodernism and relativism, they all come together uh, in the internet. And suddenly there's enough family brokenness going on with older versions of this. Uh, people deciding they can just do no-fault divorce, uh, abandon their children, uh, take these marriage vows very lightly uh, in the eyes of God and or the state. And suddenly you get this brokenness of people coming along with what you might call trauma or depression or just the sense that something is missing uh, because they didn't grow up in a traditional family environment or you did and it was okay, but you see all this suffering around you and suddenly you're vulnerable to these other beliefs, sexualityism beliefs. Stephen, what you're saying is this is all Mrs. Doubtfire's fault. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. it could be. I wouldn't want to blame the late Robin Williams for too much, but uh, you mentioned well, the movie, that though, you know, the, the, the it, message it, of the film, the, you know, it's a very uh, divorce yes. is okay, actually. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, it, it starts well, that, off that movie in, has it in all, popular culture. It? it starts off in, in popular culture. Right. Just, yeah. 
it's assumed that this is okay. And you know, the real story, like even in the 1994 Tim Allen Christmas classic, the Santa Claus, it's kind of a fantasy mm. they're giving you yeah. that yeah, uh, yeah. husband and wife can get divorced. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the new husband, the stepdad is a kind of a cringe psychologist sort. Uh, but, uh, thanks to some Christmas magic and accidentally killing Santa Claus, uh, you can actually learn to get along. Uh, even though you get remarried to Mrs. Claus and this isn't even a Christmas show, you guys, <laughs> it's, it's April. <laughs> it's just an example I thought of these early nineties movies, but let me circle back. Um, Zach, how did you feel I did defining sexuality? Is yeah, I, I think you did well when we said it, when someone makes, um, sexual desire, kind of their core identity marker. Um, and I, I thought of a public figure that, um, uh, is not a politician, but this is an entertainer that I think embodies this really well it's jimmy kimmel so jimmy kimmel really since the last two presidential cycles ago he's really been pushing for he's gone beyond pressing for gay rights but then for trans rights you know he makes a lot of jokes about this some interviews he's done but a lot of people are pulling up these old videos of him from i guess the 90s or whenever it was that he was the co-host of the man show oh yes and in in this you know in this show he is um joking about other kinds of um, sexual acts uh, against women and and just kind of making very light of things that would get people me too'd, as we've said now. And so he's really the same person. He's just changed the direction of, you know, or he's changed the emphasis on which area of sexuality he wants to promote and, and which one is the most important um, to uh, to advocate for. But this is who he's always been. Um, so I, I think it, it, it can take these different forms is what I'm saying. I, I think you've got a good definition there. So that's a dessert from the concession stand is that if someone comes along and says, well, why don't you talk about divorce? Why don't you talk about, uh, the, the problems with straight relationships? Again, just borrowing from the modern made up term there, normal relationships, husband, wife, male, female relationships. Why don't you talk about all the brokenness with those to that? I think the wise Christian would respond. It's all the same, but we've got to start somewhere. Uh, yeah. You can't go all the way back to where it started going wrong uh, without also talking about the people who are trying to legislate and culturally impose uh, even more twisted versions of sexualityism. Yes, I, think, I want yeah, people it, to stay together in yeah. marriages. That's definitely part of it. That's but we've got to start somewhere. Yeah. That's a given. Yeah, it, exactly right. And I think um, uh, if you listen to, I sometimes listen to Andrew Sullivan's podcast. Sullivan, of course, is the godfather of gay marriage. And he's still kicking. He's, he's still out there doing his, his boomer gay thing. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, he, uh, he, he reads my sub stack and plugs me sometimes, so I'm not going to complain too loudly. But um, he, he had Carl Truman on his podcast. Did and, he you, now? I didn't know that. Fascinating. Yep. Now, I think you have to subscribe now for the Dishcast. So you got to give Andrew your, your pound of flesh if you want to listen to the full thing. But it was quite an interesting show. And I... I like Carl. I think Carl did well, but he was also caught a little off guard. Andrew kind of bamboozled him and told him ahead of time, oh, don't worry, we're not going to talk about this, and that they totally talked about it. So that, that's on Andrew. Um, it's a trap. Okay. It's a, yeah, definitely, for sure. So it, yeah, for future reference, if you ever go on Andrew Sullivan's podcast, he's definitely going to want to talk all about sex, whatever else he pretends that you're actually going to talk about. Um, so, so Andrew was really pushing the, but what about divorce line as a you know, kind of a whataboutism, Implication being, shouldn't Christians really be quieter about the gay thing? Because after all, look at the divorce thing. Um, and I felt like Carl was maybe a little too polite and, and didn't 
didn't kind of push back the way that I would have in that situation, just to say, like you're saying, you, you, you have to start somewhere. And I just disagree that there's a sense in which we, the collective we, have somehow forfeited the right to speak with a moral authority here um, because some Christians somewhere may have been too lax on divorce, you know? Right. Bethel, you mentioned earlier uh, this Christian creator of the, uh, the radio show uh, who yes. had been in a sense blacklisted from mainstream Hollywood, not because he wasn't artistically great enough, but because he had gotten too close to the bad ones, focus on the family. Yep. Uh, there's Richards. a line out yep. there. Yeah. There's a line out there specifically among some Christian creators. Uh, and I, no name comes to mind right now. So I'm not pecking on anyone. I just know that in some of our um, Christian author or uh, fantastical author community, there's a line that says, well, if only Christians were kinder and or more dedicated to their craft, then we could find mainstream success, not just at some uh, little lonely Christian animation studio out there, but at Pixar, at Disney, at DreamWorks. Like, you know, we could, we could be right up there with uh, Tom Cruise, you guys. We could be right up there with Ben Affleck uh, doing his uh, artist equity. That, that's just interesting. Kinder and or more dedicated to the craft. Like, these things have nothing to do with each other. Well, it comes so from people yeah. who I think are projecting their own experience on everyone else. They seem I, I to guess. think that because uh, the moral majority went bad and now too many Christians are tangled up with politics, uh, that means that we've got to get away from that sort of thing. Um, I do find it, and I, I want to say this very kindly, and we'll talk about this more in chapter three, but I do find that very naive. Uh, I don't, it's not a sin to be naive. Uh, the book of Proverbs might say simple. It's a very bless your heart kind of condemnation there. Bless yep. your heart. Maybe that's true in some cases. Some <laughs> Christians are just cringe and they want to put John 3.16 on everything and then call it good, but not all of them. Sometimes yep. Christians are not leaving Hollywood because they can't stand the people. Sometimes they are getting pushed out. And yep. that has happened in Christian publishing. Uh, Thomas Simstad's talked about that a lot on his podcast. It's happened in Hollywood contexts. There are some exceptions we've heard about uh, where people can kind of get in in the middle of neutral world before all of the um, uh, activism really, really got hotter. Uh, and then they're sort of uh, grafted in. You know, they, they got in at a good point and now they have cover uh, from, a, from a friendly in there uh, in the industry. But that does not happen to everyone. And I would be very surprised right now if it happened to a newer younger Christian who is kind and maybe even compromising a little on this, but unless you compromise all the way with the fullest expression of uh, sexualityism right now, you're probably not going to get far. And I think that is just a fact. That doesn't mean you've got to be an island creatively. It doesn't mean you need to be mean or angry, but I think it does mean you need to face reality. Well, I mean, I, it's very similar because I, I grew up in the academy. I, I'm a university brat. My, my dad is a, is a philosophy professor. So it's a similar dilemma to what talented young Christian scholars face with university. It's like, okay, I want to be really good at my scholarship. I just want to you know, pick an area and excel at it, but I would also like to eat. How is this going to work if I'm a Christian conservative? The way that I've watched people figure it out in the academy is they'll pick an area of specialization that's not intrinsically political necessarily. They'll pick something to focus on where it's like, you know, I can just put my head down, do my thing, work in this area, and I'm not going to need to tell everybody what I think about XYZ political things as a matter of keeping my job. 
but I am going to have to be quiet about that. I'm going to have to think about who, who I accept as a Facebook friend, what I say on socials, what I say to friends and colleagues. You know, if there's some major media event, I'm going to be careful what I say at the water cooler. And I think a lot of Christian creatives may be in a similar place. You know, you, you, you could pick kinds of stories to write that are, you know, maybe they're just really cracking good stories. And turns out that a lot of people like them and people want to work with you and you're a likable guy and, and you kind of find a, a place for yourself that way. Um, but it may, it may come down to what you say outside of that, because the nicest, most talented, hardworking, creative guy, as you're saying, Stephen, it does not matter. One slip, one tweet, one person who's got it in for you and you could be out of there you know everything could be everything you built and worked for it could come crashing down around you and all the talent and niceness isn't going to save you so that's a sneak preview of chapter three we're going to go to chapter two in a moment about uh christians specifically i would say under threat from this false religion doesn't mean we respond angrily we need to respond in a christ-like way but i think we need to face reality first but first though speaking of falling into the lowest circle of hell let's go to our second sponsor which is a novel called infernal fall by brian timothy mitchell he sponsored the show before but now there's an update the infernal fall audiobook is out and to celebrate descendant publishing is giving away 100 free codes through spotify Enter the giveaway before July 7 at briantimothymitchell.com for a chance to hear James L. Rubart narrate Brian's debut novel. In this modern twist on Dante's Inferno, Daniel Strong is ready to propose marriage until he falls into hell, where a demon plans to take him from the Valley of the Fiery Mountain through the city of Grayton and on to Satan. Another spirit wants to save him, but to escape, Daniel needs to get right with God. While hell feeds his rage, the engagement ring in his pocket reminds him to never lose hope. You can learn more at briantimothymitchell.com, link in our show notes, or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Bethel and Zach, we've already gone here a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about how this false religion, which we're calling sexualityism, threatened Christians. I would say that we are under threat from this religion like we would be any greedism or racism religion in a parallel world, but we're in Earth One. That's why we've got to face reality right now. Uh, Bethel, earlier I mentioned in our very full uh, concession stand, more of the all-you-can-eat buffet, that Christians rightly have this evangelistic impulse. Uh, we have been saved by love from a terrible fate, like Daniel Strong falling into hell. We, we've been saved. Uh, we want to love and be loved, and we do have our marching orders from Jesus Christ, not necessarily to be warriors, but to be evangelists, disciplers. We're supposed to make disciples and teach them to observe everything that our Lord Jesus commanded us as Christians. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, people who are in the know about Christian weaknesses, because we are supposed to be weak, people can come along and take advantage of this love. Some take advantage of us inside the church, and some take advantage of us from outside the church. And I would say, Bethel, and you've seen this, and I've seen you tangle with them, and you mentioned Revoice, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But we've mentioned how some Christian leaders who are so focused on their one thing, uh, like that one guy who mentioned, well, I, I want to talk about this over here, that they seem incapable of facing reality, they seem incapable of sorting the difference between victim and victimizer because they're all about the evangelism. 
And so they do drift into what Zach uh, called rightly pragmatism. Uh, and they're compromising their own faith. They're saying, well, I want to sacrifice so much to reach the lost. When instead, I think uh, the Lord Jesus would say, first, you need to obey. You need to glorify me. That's your chief end, not just sharing me with other people. Like You, you need to obey. Uh, and you see these people, um, Beth Bell tangles with them on the Twitter sometimes and, and some of their allies in the, the cultural conservative And then community. they block me. So. And then they block you. Yeah, I, I saw that happen the other day. Yep. Um, I've called this ministry myopia. And we mentioned this some in, in previous episodes where no fault of their own, but pastors or megachurch leaders or parachurch leaders or academics get into this zone where they only want to specialize about one thing. No, I want to talk about what's gone wrong with the church because of tip politics. I don't want to talk about this issue here. That's not my thing. But then I don't want you to talk about it either. Uh, you, Christian, are the one obsessed with this one thing. Whereas Bethel, you may be more of a Renaissance woman who only talks about these things on occasion. And yet, because that is uh, the, the flashpoint in culture right now, it seems to others maybe that that's the only thing you're talking about. I tweet a lot about it. It's interesting. I mean, my, my Twitter and my Substack are, I kind of handle those differently, but that, that's, that's its, its own thing. Um, and so, 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 yeah, go ahead and finish your thought. And then I, I I'm just curious what happened. You mentioned earlier Revoice. Now, this yes. isn't the, there's all kinds of Christian nonfiction uh, pastor preacher uh, apologetics podcasts about this group in particular. Uh, and we're not, don't mean to single them out, but it's simply uh, the most recent example, I would say, of Christians who got at best a ministry myopia and did not even know that they were being captured by what we can only describe as a false religion. What happened there? I'm actually going to go farther than that. Okay. I think they did know. Um, okay. But, yeah. I, I mean, that's part of what m the most recent piece I've written about this at first things, which caused much wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, I basically say, I, th I think you actually could have seen the warning signs from the beginning. It, it was just a little bit more cloaked at first, and then now it's gradually become more and more uncloaked. So you're um, respecting the foe a little bit more here. Like uh, there's, there's yes. one way you could say, well, they didn't know what they were doing. Like, oh, that's disrespectful. Uh, yeah. They did know. They weren't stupid. Uh, let's I'm, let's I, at least respect the reality. I'm going to say I think they did know. I think the people behind this were quite smart um, and and even creative. I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, one reason why I think they were successful for a while is that they, you know, they were very talented writers. Uh, you know, some of them were really into like literature and film and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, lots of lots of stuff that they were sort of drawing on there. Um, and I, I mean, I even like the film criticism of one of them. Her name's Eve Tushnet. Um, you know, when, she, when she's not promoting sexualityism, she writes quite good film reviews. Um, but yeah, no, people like her absolutely knew what they were doing. And, and I mean, what they were doing was pushing the church leftward. Um, so, f you know, functionally, I think what Revoice emerged as, and I mean, sorry, I I kind of dropped this in there earlier as like a little inside baseball thing. I didn't really define it. We skated past it. So maybe I'll give like the really short version for people who have no idea what we're talking about. So, so, okay. What this was, was it was, it was Christians who were pitching themselves as kind of like a third way between the mean Christians over here who are all like about conversion therapy and pray to gay away and that, that sort of stuff. Okay. We don't want to be like those Christians. Ick, you know, um, but uh, we, we're not going to be like the rainbow flag Episcopalian Christians who are totally affirming gay marriage and gay identity. We are the perfect 
sensitive, smart third way, right? Everyone come buy our books and, and support our conferences. Um, and that ended up spiraling because, you know, really, essentially what they were doing collapsed into a version of the rainbow flag crew um, because it was, it was still accepting certain leftist precepts about identity. Um, and that's just become more and more and more obvious. And then as trans has come up, trans has just gotten folded right in there and they're starting to use everyone's preferred pronouns. They've invited a speaker who called herself a they, them and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's assuming, it's assuming these liberal identitarian uh, categories for all of these things and the, the, the victim, victimizer, oppressed, oppressor categories as well, uh, where, you know, all of us, we gay Christians, we LGBT folks uh, are this minority voice in the church. So it's our job to, uh, to prophetically speak truth to power um, and, you know, stand up for ourselves and, and tell everybody how they need to speak and act at this point around us. So, you know, that similar woke mentality that you'll see where it's like everyone else needs to just shut up and let the minority people take the microphone and set the terms here, set the stage for the dialogue. And so they totally, that was their driving philosophy. Are you saying that was, uh, tell us about side B and your most recent article about that, that got you blocked by a, a few loving individuals. Well, so, so this, um, yeah, it's interesting that I, I say was, I should say is really, cause I mean, they are still out there, but I think they have, I think their influence has been waning because as it's become more obvious what they actually think and where this train was actually going, um, I've seen increasingly, I've, I've seen people like earnest conservatives who initially were curious, like, well, yeah, I want to be sensitive. I want to be smart. I, I'd like a better way of talking about this stuff. I, I, don't I would have really, been one of those. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't, I don't really agree with the pray the gay away people either. So sure. I'm listening. Tell me. Um, but I think a, a number of those people recently have been like, oh, this train is not going where I thought it was. Never mind. I'm, I'm getting off. So that's why I kind of use the word was. It's because I think they've increasingly they're talking to themselves now, which is good. I hope that continues. Um, but so what side B, so, so side, side B, okay, let, let me back up a little bit here. Um, there's this lingo, it kind of got started at the age of the, the message board where there's uh, two sides of a record and each side represents a different way of discussing gayness and Christianity. So on side A, you have people who claim, I'm gay, but that's okay. God blesses my gay marriage. Um, there's nothing wrong with me, yay, rainbow flag affirming. Then side B is, I'm gay, and that's not totally okay, but some elements of it might not be too terrible, but I'm choosing not to act it out physically. Um, but, you know, I may be going to explore some other ways that I could sort of sublimate it and, and semi-normalize it in some ways and maybe kind of blur some lines between romance and friendship, which I, I think um, that's what a lot of their writing ended up doing. That, I think, is, is what Side B has emerged to be. And so, it, you know, it revoices the name of a conference, and then Side B is sort of an idea or a philosophy underlying it. Now, in early days, there was a lot of disorganization and confusion. People who would have called themselves, quote-unquote, Side B, but they, they had a different view of these things. And then as 
the lines have clarified, there's been a little bit more differentiation. A lot of those people have actually just left. Like, okay, I, I'm not really on the side B project now. Um, and people will kind of manipulate language and say, oh, all that side B means is uh, people who are same-sex attracted, but they would like to be chased. That's literally all it means. That's so what I'd like it to mean. Exactly. Right. And I would say, well, that's, you know, in those early days when this stuff was kind of vague and fuzzy and still being hashed out, yeah, you could have found people under the side B umbrella who were, that really was all they were saying. But uh, stuff has happened. Water has flowed under the bridge. Things have gotten clearer. So I think it's totally legitimate now to identify side B with specifically this identitarian Variant on sexualityism, I think, functionally is is what it's begun. It's like basically the only thing that they'll still say they disagree with is you know you know the physical acts of same sex intercourse, but a bunch of other stuff short of that. The spiritual friendship idea, some of that. Yeah, which and, Jesus and, himself talked about. It's not enough just to not enough to not just commit adultery. Right, exactly. And yeah. so one, the line is not at adultery, yeah. it's at lust. Yeah, this is I'm back I'm back in youth group where or the bad youth group where they're like, Well, how yeah. far is too far? Here's a list yeah. of twelve things Pre- you might do with your girlfriend and you need to stop right here before <laughs> step nine. Uh, yeah, and they'll they'll pretend and they'll get really offended if you make that analogy. Like, no, that's not what we're doing. How dare you? It's like what well, kind of is though. So so one element that I think is especially apt to our discussion was a talk called uh a, a talk about queer treasure. Uh, that was that was the title. Oh of it. yes, the kings and queens going to bring their treasure into the new heavens and new earth. It, like now, yes. now you're messing because it's just about to be Holy Week, and I always love talking about resurrection all the time, but especially this time of year, and right. particularly the renewal of the entire planet. Like you're getting a hold of a very deep, often ignored biblical truth about how some items of human culture will, it seems, according to Revelation 21 through 22 pass through the gates of the new Jerusalem. And there's other hints about this in Isaiah 60 and elsewhere. But what happened then, Bethel, where they kind of get a hold of that and then kind of forget about the part where there's a judgment fire yeah. across the entire planet where that happened before that happened. Right. It's supposed to like purify some stuff. And so, you know, I watched this queer treasure talk and it's, you know, it's this sort of potted history of LGBT activism, very biased, very slanted in a leftist way. Certain people are held up as heroes who shouldn't be held up as heroes. Mm. Um, you know, and it's telling a story, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's accepting the leftist story verse, so to speak for, for all of this. And then it's saying, Hey, Christians, it's like sort of a misappropriation of, of Tim Keller center church, basically. Um, he was explicitly saying, hey, I'm just doing the Tim Cower thing, but for gay culture. And I'm saying, look, let's contextualize. Let's see if we can find handholds in queer art, queer culture, where, you know, that can be an opportunity to introduce the gospel. So, hey, coming out of the closet, it's sort of like resurrection. Am I right? You know, it's it's like. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the gospel yeah. according the, the, to the Simpsons, the gospel right? according to Family Guy. Well, I, yeah. I don't even think it's that though. So it's, it, they're trying to contextualize mini- ministry to an identity group. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but that that's based on a sin. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly. based on a, a sexual disorder. And and what I mean by that is anything outside of God's design for sexuality is a disorder. That God designed the order. And thus the disorder of this. And so there's a very similar thing that happens 
in ministry, like foreign missions, particularly in the Middle East. It's like, how much do you take the religious language, the religious texts of people in the Middle East and adapt that into a gospel presentation? And that gets very tricky. That gets very slippery. But this is not that. Like what you're talking about is not that because I've listened to that talk and I've read that. You know, there's this idea that this identity group has a, um, is a source of wisdom. Right. Exactly. Okay. So now we're getting into standpoint epistemology. Exactly. That that there is secret knowledge available to special people. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are sacred texts and people, these people are sacred. Sacred Jedi texts. Yeah. And that's a, that's a entirely different religious worldview than the Christian worldview. Exactly. It's a replacement religion. And, uh, you know, you know, I do think this is a whole separate podcast. It is fair to look at that Tim Keller Center Church kind of approach and ask, uh, is this essentially a reductio of the Tim Keller approach? You know, and I, you know, I think in a way it is. I think in a way this young guy, Grant Hartley, is sort of calling the bluff in a way. He is following all the way out to this absurd conclusion, except he's presenting it as if it's not absurd. So I do think there's issues with that Kellerish philosophy. But that, I mean, that's its own whole thing. Um, but so, yeah. And th- the thing is, as I was listening to this this little this little talk, I was thinking, you know, I've I've dipped into quite a bit of gay culture, gay art, gay literature, you know, art written by gay people. It's um, it's overwhelmingly unhappy, <laughs> you know. Um, it, it there's there's like yeah, there, there there can be. I mean, I like the Birdcage. It's 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 a fun movie. I'm I'm not saying don't don't watch the Birdcage and, and you know, Robin Williams' little little dance. You know, it's like, eh, you know, will that be queer treasure that's brought into the to the kingdom? I you know, there's <laughs> there's there's interesting artistic stuff to play with here, but it but it's all grounded in like you're saying, Zach, in, in this this disorder. And I mean, I I would recommend. People go watch um, a movie called The Boys in the Band, um, which was a, a stage play originally, and it, it came out in the 60s, and it was this really kind of groundbreaking gay work. And the, the basic premise is that a bunch of gay guys get together for uh, for one of them's birthday party, and uh, they sit around talking, and a lot of toxic stuff kind of comes out. Um, and it's, I mean... It's very secular. It's written in gay perspective, but I think it also has an edge to it that I'm not, I, you know, it's 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 very frank about just how unhappy all of these guys are, and they'll tell a story to themselves of like, well, I'm unhappy because of homophobia, or well, I'm acting out sexually because I've been so repressed and I live in a straight society, a straight world that can't accept who I am as a gay man. So if you read the book The Velvet Rage by Alan Downs, that's sort of his his premise, but. Um, it's fair. It becomes really obvious if you're if you're honest that that's not what's actually going on here. What's actually going on here is these people are doing something that's intrinsically wrong, intrinsically disordered, and it's making them unhappy. And so, it you know it's it's really wrongheaded and dangerous to approach this kind of material like oh what great wisdom can I find here? That's not the spirit in which you should be approaching it. Uh, you know you can. I think there's there's stuff to be appreciated there, um, but it's you, you should you need to have a clear-eyed recognition of where this is coming from and, and what's what's at the root of it, and like there's a lot of pain at the root of this, 
and pain and disorder um, are not going to be brought into the kingdom. That's what's going mm-hmm. to be purified. Mm-hmm. All tears will be wiped away. Amen. Amen. We, we, we will not be bringing into the kingdom that which causes tears. You know, I think there will be memories of of that which caused tears. There is no memory wipe. Uh, the the Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear, not every memory. Yes. I think those who struggled with these things will remember the struggle, but only for the purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ Himself arguably will still have uh, the healed scars from His own crucifixion in his resurrected body forever. We can see what happened. We'll remember what happened just as we might remember those emotional or even physical scars from sufferings that we've been through. Uh, but the sufferings themselves do not continue. Uh, the monuments of those maybe, I mean, would you put a, a, a play like that, like in a, in a new earth museum? Right. Maybe, but it, are you going to treat that as a special relic? I don't think so. I think there's a great misunderstanding here, Bethel, of what the Apostle Paul did in Acts 17, where Paul goes to the city of Athens. It's a famous missionary example, uh, often used by folks who want to engage tech culture, uh, where Paul sees the uh, I, the idol, uh, the dedication to an unknown God. Paul says, I, I see men of Athens, you have all these idols in the city. Uh, why, <laughs> just the other day, walking around in your fine establishment, I saw an idol to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And there's a misunderstanding there as if Paul was taking a statue of Zeus or Hermes or Diana or somebody and saying, okay, you guys just, you know, God is just like Zeus. Yeah. You know, like if I saw <laughs> right. Saul the other day, I was that's reading not in a synagogue that would, that's not contextualized. lightning. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. He got, uh, Paul is not comparing uh, the actual almighty God who exists uh, to Zeus who does not exist uh, apart from uh, the DC universe and other mythologies. Zeus ain't real. God is. Uh, the Apostle Paul is making a rhetorical point, seeing that he observed their culture and that they, they got so many gods, they don't want to do with them. They, they built one as a, as a catch-all, uh, a, a cipher, in case you want to plug one in, in case we left one out. And the Apostle Paul is kind of wryly observing uh, on their idolatry while also complimenting them. It's a brilliant rhetorical move. Uh, that is like it's misapplied so, so often. So misapplied, it flies yeah. right over our heads. Now, I don't mean that you can't like watch a superhero movie and you say, "Well, this superhero died and came back to life, uh, just like Jesus." You know, I, I love a few of those movies. If you couldn't tell, but I'm not going to treat that as if that movie has some special knowledge, some special super secret, uber artistic mm-hmm. uh, advantage yep. uh, over the revelation of God's word or the testimony right. of a Christian saint. That's right. But what you know, what what's happening here is that. It, Grant was, with that talk, he was replacing Christianity with leftism, um, and and you know, re- replacing Christian categories with leftist categories of how to think about sin, how to think about who who's wronged, who who needs to apologize for what, because all of this is predicated on, on this idea that um, the church has messed up in this huge way, and you know, like we have. Conservatives need to have all this shame and guilt around how they have treated the LGBTQ community, um, which means they yet now need to sit at sit at the feet of this community and learn. And you know, yeah, this is the exact same the approach of the Black yeah. Lives Matter, White Fragility, exactly. how to yep. be an anti-racist. Same, it's the exact same, same playbook. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, you also see there what I've called the church back home syndrome, which we talked about in episode 152. Real trauma, real backstories, uh, problems with the church or youth group or Christian institution or whatever that done you wrong, 
or done your friends wrong. And so you're empathizing with your friends and then you become the kind of a savior characteristic of your own narrative. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to do better than the church back home. Yep. Uh, I'm, I will find healing by healing. Uh, and as a result, I think people are uniquely vulnerable to what I, I would call an emotional bribe uh, from a false ideology. As or emotional blackmail. Show, yeah, emotional blackmail, yeah. emotional yeah. bribe, whatever. Somebody comes along and, and slips you a, a spiritual $100 bill or a suitcase full of them and says, I got the goods. Uh, I've got what you need. Uh, you are going to use my ideology and you're going to get special ministry privilege or secret knowledge. Uh, in order to, of course, fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, of course, you're going to help clean up the church. Uh, and as a result, you get the ministry myopia, where even well-meaning people or some Bethel, like useful idiots or folks who know what they're doing, focus on the pet topic. Like they're the ones who are constantly going to this. Uh, they're the ones who are bringing up this topic a lot. It, it is 100% their goal to work in their evangelism calls alongside right. this belief system. A yes. And because yes. so many other Christians feel burned out by what they call the culture wars, including Christian creators, we'll get to that in a moment, uh, other civilians are more vulnerable to this. And so they are failing to discern the difference between suffering civilians, you know, the same-sex guy next door uh, who's had a hard life, and active combatants, uh, folks who have taken their victim status and who have now become the victimizers. The cycle of abuse is real, you guys, uh, and it takes a lot of discernment to figure out when someone tips over uh, from a legit victim of these ideas and the stuff they're picking up on social media and now has become a perpetrator of these ideas. If we get these two confused, we risk enabling yeah. abuse and ignore, uh, we risk enabling evil and ignoring victims. Yes, and this is you know at this point you 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 could plug one of my world pieces, which um, you know maybe you were even planning to raise that um, about sh sheep and wolves. Oh, the broken, the sheep and the wolves. Yes. I literally have that quote here. You want me to read it? Go ahead. All right. Yeah. It, it was actually a paraphrase of Carl Truman in a recent podcast. Encourages Christians to distinguish carefully between the victims and the perpetrators of the new sexual revolution, the people who are being destroyed and the people who are destroying them. We should handle the former tenderly but we should handle the latter ruthlessly. With some people, it is possible to be too gentle, too ready to assume good faith. On the other hand, Truman points out that it is possible to forget many people are suffering, and not all of them have the singular goal of destroying Western civilization. Bethel, I want you to flesh that out in a moment. This, to me, goes to the issue of Christian vocation. Uh, if I'm a Christian uh, uh, influencer type uh, who's been compromised with these beliefs, then I feel my vocation is to help the hurting, uh, even if I don't know them. It's just a group of hurting people out there on the other side of my social media or in the audience at my big old conference. If I'm a Christian counselor, I think my goal legitimately is to help the hurting. If I'm a pastor sitting right there in the office with someone who says, Pastor, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, then you should not react to that person uh, like a conservative radio host and say, well, uh, you just need to vote this way uh, and, and you need to be aware that they really are out to get your kids uh, and, you know, call them all groomers. Like there may be a place for that, but it's not there in the counselor's office. On the other hand, if you are a Christian or conservative, Catholic, whatever, talk radio host, then I don't think your job is to counsel. Uh, the victims. Like you are an activist. You are a lobbyist. Uh, I think that you are on the front lines against the folks who are trying to destroy Western civilization. Christian, you got to know what hat you're wearing right now. Are you yes. in your pundit <laughs> hat? Uh, are you doing your political activism hat or are you in your 
faithful, compassionate counselor to a struggling friend hat. And I've worn both of those hats. So it takes a lot of wisdom to switch them off does. like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and this is what uh, is it? I'm trying to think of the verse. Uh, is it First John? It's like there's some people we have to warn, and there's some people we have to encourage. Right. Um, help me out here if you if you want to look it up, but. Yes, we have to take different approaches depending on where someone is coming from. Uh, but I'm going to say something here that might be a little controversial. Ooh. I, I well, think, why stop now? <laughs> go on. <laughs> oh, do go on. Yeah, I think where Christians are threatened the most by sexualityism is through close relationships. Oh, I've seen a lot of people turn yeah. based on... Well, uh, there it is because, again. It's, uh, it's empathy, no empathy, Zach. It's all about yes. the empathy, and I get it. I get it. Yeah, and um, there was this quote earlier is, as we were defining sexualityism, I was thinking back to the defining movie of my generation, Generation X, which is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> and uh, he says, uh, quote, not that I condone fascism or any ism for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in ism. He should believe in himself. And so I would just adapt Ooh, that for today's okay. world. Where, where the, yeah, where I, I would say there, there might be a, uh, someone who listens to this episode and said, well, I don't believe in sexualityism. I just believe in my best friend or my neighbor or my brother or my sister or, love wins. or my relative. Yeah. I believe in loving people and accepting mm-hmm. people and supporting people. I believe in love. As okay? defined by whom, though? And that's exactly the point. How do you define love and support? And, you know, and this is where I'll get controversial. I, I think a lot of people are simply unequally yoked. The Apostle Paul addresses this. Spicy. And uh, is it First Corinthians? He says, um, I'm writing to you to not be uh, associated with people who are sexually immoral, not meaning the people of the world, but anyone who calls himself a brother and is sexually immoral or an idolater. And he lists a few other things. And I, I think that is often the really sticking point of this topic is when you've got someone close in your life who is living this lifestyle and you say, well, I don't want to lose this relationship. Look, that is the cost of admission into being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus he said, deny yourself. Yes. He said, brother will turn against brother. Parent will turn against child. You will be kicked out of the synagogue. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Expect to be persecuted. And I, I think we've gotten too comfortable in thinking no one's going to persecute me. And then we, gaslight ourselves or we are gaslit. Well, there's no persecution happening in America. This isn't communist China. What are you talking about? But, you know, Jesus continually talked about this, about, and this, the whole book of Hebrews is written about this, is that you will be rejected for following Christ. Like, do you think you're better than Jesus? Do you think you're nicer or kinder or more loving? You know, Jesus came from heaven to earth and put on human skin like he has gone way farther than all of us and he was rejected. We should not assume we won't be rejected, even if we're doing everything right. Hmm. It's, so. it's like that great line in Fiddler on the Roof uh, where Yenta says, Golda, I tell you, if God lived on earth, people would break his windows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we should reject people or be mean to them or anything like that. But it means that we can do everything right and be pushed away, and we have to choose loyalty to Christ. Yeah, I was talking to a uh, my my friend uh, Josh Dawes, who I'm sure you guys both follow. Josh is good people. Uh, 
we were discussing the whole seeker sensitive thing and, and uh, we, we were reading a, a substat by Kirsten Powers, who had, that's a bit of a name from the past, um, but she was a bit of a celebrity conversion at the Tim Keller Redeemer Church. And she's since gone through this whole deconstruction thing. And she had a sub stack where she was complaining about he gets us and seeker sensitive tactics. Because, uh, you know, she was like, she's saying it's a trap, basically. They'll, they'll hook you with the, the nice stuff about helping the poor and how loving mm. Jesus was. And then they'll get you when you're too deep in to get out. Um, it turns out that, well, they actually do still believe conservative stuff about sex and stuff. Um, that's what happened to me. And, you know, frankly, I don't really trust her that much. I don't think she's a super reliable mouthpiece at this point. But uh, there's a, a grain of truth to what she's saying, I it's think. Insightful. which is that yeah. Right. I mean, I don't think churches do themselves any favors by functionally playing bait and switch. Um, and so right. my, my friend Josh was remembering a church that he knew in, in California who they they, you know, they were kind of chill. They, they weren't like overtly telegraphing what they thought about certain things. But, you know, every like half a year or whatever, they would have a sermon series on sexuality. And all of the, you know, hip people who had checked the church out and thought it was cool would get outraged and leave. Because like, wait a minute. Oh, you believe that? How terrible. Rinse and repeat. You know, so. Um, so, yeah, this this. It's it it really it's best to just say what you think up front and let the chips fall where they may. And if that functionally means that there are fewer butts in seats, oh well. Um it, I think it just means that gospel is intrinsically offensive. Um yeah. so you know, ob- obligatory disclaimers about not being a jerk, but it it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And well, you can take it up with Jesus Christ who attributed yeah. uh, the second, third chapter of Genesis saying, have you not read that from the beginning, God made the male and female. Yep. Uh, if you yep. are a creative person, then your call to creativity from God overlaps with his call for people to team up husbands and wives, form families, be fruitful, multiply. It's all the same command. If you compromise one, you will compromise the other. You're going to make bad stories and bad relationships. We'll get to that in chapter three. First of all, as Bethel was talking about this uh, conference where uh, not a lot of great stuff happens, I just think it's important to remember that there are conferences where better things happen. And one of them is our third sponsor, Realm Makers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are the Christian-led organization that is holding its 11th annual event for hundreds of writers who create fantasy, science fiction, and other stories. Their conference will be this July 13th through 15th back in St. Louis, Missouri. Authors can register at realmmakers.com for the event. They can choose to attend in person at the Sheraton Westport Chalet Hotel or live streaming on the dedicated Realm Sphere social network. Co-owner and CEO Rebecca P. Miner says, We at Realm Makers have enjoyed the privilege for over a decade of connecting Christian creators to one another and to opportunities in the publishing marketplace. We're not just about bringing expert faculty to the conference for teaching, although that's one of the pillars of what we do. We've also discovered that a writer's success is tied into relationships one way or another. The annual conference offers a supportive environment where authors can take the next step in their creative journey. You can learn more in our news release linked in the show notes or go directly to realmmakers.com to learn more about uh, this long-running Christian fantastical creator resource and perhaps register yourself if you want to write these kinds of stories. 
All right, chapter three, we have set it up a few times and then pulled back and stuck with the outline, but now we're going in. Uh, we've talked about what is sexualityism, how does sexualityism threaten Christians, more of the nonfiction side of things, right? Now let's talk about how does sexualityism threaten Christian fiction, and I want to set this up for you all uh, going in. Uh, we've mentioned the threat of, uh, of what we've called toxic uh, empathy, uh, the fact that because we are supposed to be loving and caring and supportive uh, to those struggling around us as, as good neighbors, if not Christian family members, some folks, though, can turn this against us, uh, whether in a political activist way or just in a culture warrior kind of way. And then a lot of Christians find themselves on the defensive and some get rowdier. Uh, and then somebody who didn't see how the fight started comes along and says, well, either you kids stop that fighting or you Christian, you started this when the Christian did not in fact start this. Uh, Christian creatives, I would say, uh, and by that I mean a, a Christian who wants to create a fantasy story or a fiction of some kind. I think that we are doubly vulnerable to this because to be a person who wants to create professionally in some way uh, has an even more intuitive nature. We're supposed to be more empathetic, right-brained, uh, in touch with our feelings so that we can express creative beauty through our work. And I think there's a lot of Christian creatives, uh, even at the, the really famous levels, uh, who have been burned out by the creative industry, maybe specifically the evangelical industry. Uh, yeah, I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, so-and-so got out of big Hollywood and then joined up with Pure Flix to make some cheap uh, Christian movies. I'm talking about it. At least there's one popular entertainer. Uh, I think we all we all we all know him and love him. Um, who seems to have turned from making kids fiction, uh, evangelicals and others, uh, to political podcasting. Rhymes with um, Phil Fisher. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Let's just keep it real, Bethel. Thank you. Uh, yes, and you know, God, God bless him. But I've said before that bless it's his a, heart. Bless his heart. It's well. From a creative perspective, and, and this is just one example, folks, from a creative perspective, it's, uh, it's a step down. It's a demotion uh, from making uh, uh, videos, uh, fantastical ones, that got all these songs stuck in people's heads. And, you know, it wasn't just him. There were many other faithful creators there, too. So not to pick on him, but it, it just it confuses me sometimes how uh, a chap who wanted to be at one point the Christian Walt Disney and then oh. hit some legit struggles like. It's nasty how the sausage gets made in that industry. Sure. Uh, I, I read his book. I liked it. You should read it. Buy the book. You know, support Phil Broke Vischer. Broke my okay? heart. Yeah, yeah. It, it is heartbreaking. Uh, but now he's on Twitter spats uh, with Christians, including you, Bethel, and some others who've been on the show. A little bit. <laughs> and I just wonder, like, what happened? And, and it yeah, just leads me to at least a sobering reminder that in some way, uh, if you go from uh, creativity to this ideology, you're not going to be as creative that maybe he's still creative i don't know it could just be a professional choice i i don't know his story i just think that other christians who feel drawn to the creative arts uh, who want to seek success particularly in the mainstream world are going to feel pressured to adopt this view um i've seen some people post uh, for example uh, the, the, uh, a moment of epiphany like a, a christian creator says like I've, I've discovered that i just want to be loving uh, I want to be affirming. I don't want to be like those bad Christians I've heard about. Uh, I just want to share the love of Jesus with people, and I'm going to do that through my art. Again, God bless you, but I think that that's naive. There are some people who do need to be helped. I think in a nonfiction way is best through the ministry of the local church on the ground. You can actually see what it's like in real life up close. Uh, and then there are other ways that you can help others that uh, 
do not involve such sentimentalist views of others and a rather sentimental view of evangelism. It seems also, by the way, to just treat everyone as a helpless victim uh, and failing to recognize that there's some out there who've already made that turn uh, from being the victim uh, to being the powerful. Yeah. Uh, that's a big it's, issue. It's, it's, I mean, it's bad for the art, too. Just yes. uh, as art. I mean, um, I, I, roll, I, I kind of get a little bit tired when, when people go on about how, oh, Christian movies, they're so heavy-handed. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're coming with the agenda and, and everything's spelled out and it's, it's all talent, no show. And here's the point that we're beating you over the head with. I'm thinking, but I mean, come on, how many Hollywood movies have done that with sexualityism? Okay, like how, how many Hollywood movies have done that with any number of, of leftist or, or um, that one Last of Us episode that you wrote about. Bethel. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Yes. The Last of Us. That thing was as bad as any Christian movie I've seen <laughs> at that department. OK, um, it was it's let's let's not pretend here. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the key to making actually good art is to to avoid both pitfalls. Right. Uh, you know, don't um, don't bang people over the head with point christianly necessarily you know you want to be artful about it but you know the solution is is not to trade um clunky christian storytelling with uh, for for clunky sexualityist storytelling mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and i think the arts world is so important and and it's it's so at the vanguard of this topic and and of the sexualityism movement because Art has become all about expressing the self rather than pointing to truth or portraying beauty. And I think that's yep. really the root problem of art, fiction, a lot of music of the last few decades. I mean, I'm not uh, a huge art critic and you know, I, I don't have expert opinions on this, but from my meager point of view, I, I really see that as, uh, as the root cause. But also, you know, I... I think the Christian artist is uniquely vulnerable to this. And I, this is something I have been seeing since probably 2010. Uh, when I started to get more into Christian media, uh, both personally and professionally, I was really dismayed to see a lot of uh, Christian filmmakers and Christian writers and Christian artists kind of wandering leftward. And yep. Yep, yep, yep. I, I think there's some element of that that's, built in a little bit um you know Stephen, you and i and, and some others are reading this book um uh, culture care by uh i'm gonna butcher the name makoto fujimura fujimura oh, yeah. that's him yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and he has this great term in there that i that i have used for myself for six or seven years which is um border stalker you know in art an artist is a it's a tongue twister is a border stalker <laughs> i can't border say it three stalker. times fast border yeah, stalker border stalker border stalker border stalker border stalker you're always going out to the edges of like, yes, yes, uh, of what you can say or what's appropriate or whatever. And like, there, and there's good and bad ways, obviously, to do this, but but you're also looking for those people who are right on the edges, you know. Yeah. And and I, there's a good side to this, but man, it it can be so easy just to get blown a little bit off course, you know. And Stephen, you talk about the word drift. It's like a lot of what we're talking about is just minor course corrections that need to happen it, it's very easy to point at you know Patel, you've talked about revoice that's gone very far of course very into a political worldview and not yep. a biblical worldview 
But I, I think a lot of what we're we're discussing in the arts world, the Christian arts world, is just those minor course corrections. Yes. Yeah. Because it, yeah. yeah, it 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 accelerates. You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's like when you're driving on the highway. I remember when when I first um was taking driving lessons, my dad was drilling this into me in you know in dad like fashion. Um, when you're when you're on the highway and you're going. 60, 70 miles an hour, it's not like when you're going 25, 30 miles an hour. And every little move you make on the steering wheel makes a big difference. So you can't handle it the way you would handle it piddling around town. You know, you, you got to be, be, be careful and think carefully about what you're doing with the wheel when you make those little tiny movements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and stories accelerate that because they grab our emotions so much more than yeah. other types of you're taking Content. your emotions on the highway. It's you yeah, know, exactly. Yeah. Uh, in the last section, I mentioned that uh, this has a lot to do with Christian vocation, uh, and the Christian as artist is called uh, to a particular purpose: uh, to reflect reality, uh, glorify God, uh, imitate His role as Creator. That goes back to Genesis one twenty-eight uh, and the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. Uh, all at once, God tells the first people. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish and the birds and the beasts. Make stuff using my stuff. And by the way, have lots and lots of kids. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to fill the earth. God's call to do art, to do creative things, to be stewards of his creation uh, is the same call that he gives to the first husband, the first wife to make families. It's all the same thing to him. This act of creating as humans that reflects his capital C role as creator. Uh, if you compromise one, you compromise the other. I think that's why art creativity does start to go downhill. Uh, once you neglect God's calling uh, to not just create uh, you know, a painting or music or something, but to create other people. And there's particular parameters around this as husbands and wives. And everybody's been trying to find different ways of doing that ever since. Uh, I don't think that you can separate out God's commandment like that so easily. And I think that uh, going back to even Genesis one ah, you're really is touching the, the third main rail. problem. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not just, uh, it's not just somebody who's hiring a surrogate out there, folks. Like there's some other things that we could touch on there, but we won't, uh, even at springtime when people are thinking about reproduction and all that sort of thing. Um, tweet, tweet, tweet. Yeah. Tweet. You mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned Zach that, yeah, this is about uh, course correction. Uh, and I will mm -hmm. say that it's not just about, you know, the artists or the secular storytellers out there. Um, I must, Bethel, you thought I was touching a third rail. Here I go. I'm just going to poke it just a little bit, but I need to. Uh, and with this disclaimer, too, um, this isn't like, well, we at Lorehaven are seeing way too many books about sexualityism and, and we are going to raise the alert. No, instead, we're just seeing a few blips on the radar yeah. uh, to switch metaphors from the course correction. Uh, and, and they do stand out. And this is good. That means that uh, we haven't had a full uh, invasion yet, if I dare so, to use a martial metaphor. Go ahead, Bethel. So I am not... Um really in the fantasy fiction world that's that that's not the type of fiction i generally pick up and so this is where i can learn from you guys could you give an example of, of a blip i wrote down a few examples um okay. there's been at least one or two authors who have come out with what i said earlier or aspiring writers i've seen who come out with like this mission statement i'm going to be the nice okay. christian yes right yeah uh, so i mentioned that um but a few published works by christian yeah. authors uh have included like 
some, for example, some sensual imagery. I, I would actually put that on the spectrum of maybe we ought to be careful about this. Uh, we're not even talking about same sex stuff or trans stuff or any of that stuff. This is just more of the I identify with my, you know, uh, sensual desires for, you know, another woman if I'm a male reader or vice versa. Um, I will give you a specific example, uh, and I'm, I want to do this carefully and respectfully. Uh, last spring, uh, there was a book called, uh, actually, it was a couple summers ago. It was a book called The Seventh Son, one uh, book of the year, I think, at Realm Makers, uh, because it was a legit, good written book for what it was trying to be. It was basically um, a, a uh, Aztec fantasy, like using the, the ancient Aztec gods in this fantasy world uh, where people had superpowers. So it's kind of like a more serious version of the Emperor's New Groove, only without the goofy comedy uh, <laughs> and a lot more high fantasy type stuff. Uh, well-written book. We actually had the guest, uh, Lonnie Forbes, on a podcast. We actually did a book quest about that in our Lorehaven Guild. Specifically on purpose, I, I chose the book uh, because, for one thing, I was immune to some of the sensual longing feelings of desire awakening descriptions that were in this book, uh, kind of at the lighter end of the mainstream YA emphasis on sensual appeal, I felt. Um, but I thought, okay, this is kind of border stalking in a sense. Like, how how far not should we go here? Way. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, and a lot of readers had a lot of debate about that. I think yeah, appropriately it was a big so. Debate. Yep. It was, yeah, and mm. and we had some podcast episodes about it. And I, for one, you know, I, I want to get a hold of this as Laura Haven's publisher. I feel responsible uh, for having a big tent, but not so big that we compromise with legit expressions of sensuality. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, the author, who, by the way, is with the Lord now, uh, she had cancer. It was terrible. Um, she actually died a few months after our episode. So I'd love to ask her about this, but we can't. It's like, hey, how did you work through those issues? You know, what, what sorts of readers were you trying to reach? Because it was a good theme of law versus gospel, even in this uh, pagan seeming world. Mm -hmm. But it was a good story. Uh, we did, however, learn afterwards that at least in book three, uh, a couple of people approached me about this. Uh, book three of the series included at least one positive mention of a same-sex relationship. Uh, kind of off to the margins, so some didn't pick up on it. I don't know why. I would love to ask uh, the late uh, author about this someday in heaven, because I don't believe that this necessarily calls into questions one's salvation. She was a faithful, suffering saint uh, and a great blessing. To the christian fantastical community i will cancel no one over this in fact i'll just give a free plug go out and buy that book see what you think was this too positive what do you think went on there uh it's something that at least christians should discuss openly without hating on one another uh, but also without hushing it up i think we need to be more open about this yeah steven you're much more familiar with that book than i am and i i think it's a good discussion to have and, and like you said it's um I think we can very gently and carefully talk about these topics with books and authors that we know about without, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, we, we can, like I said, make those minor adjustments to our course here. Um, but I think uh, there may be a Christian author out there who doesn't even want to touch this topic, does not want to mention this, any, any opinion about this publicly, and I would say that is a mistake. <laughs> Someone will find out your thoughts about this. As Bethel said, uh, you know, they, they found out six months later in that church what they really thought about these topics, and then they were flabbergasted and they left. Um, I've seen one uh, very, very well-known uh, Christian artist, a comic artist, 
basically get canceled for when his followers found out, oh, he was a Christian that's pro-life. And so we can't hide these things. And this is why I wanted to talk about this, because I, I just have to plant my flag openly about what I think the Bible says, or that I agree with what the Bible says about sexuality, and that it's very simple. I hold the traditional view about this. I'm not going to hide away from that. So cancel me if you want, whoever out there. But, you know, fellow Christian authors and readers, like, don't hide what you think. It, it's just going to make it worse. And, and as Bethel said, we don't want to do a, a bait and switch. Yeah. And I, I would say that on behalf of not just myself personally, but on behalf of Lorehaven, I mean, we have our faith statement right there. Uh, folks are going to feel bait and sw- baited and switched, uh, even if you're not trying. Uh, I, I've actually seen some people you know, unsubscribe or write some critical response to some of our content uh, when, in fact, if we were as bad as the person was talking about, I, I would agree with them uh, that this is not good. Uh, no, like, I'm not sure if you actually read or listened to the thing. Like, I think we're on the same side here, but okay. Uh, I think though, that's why it calls for clarity. This may strike uh, some people as uh, harping on the issue or not wanting to talk about anyone else, but only in the moment. Like, this is our first podcast episode where we put sexualityism in the title. We rarely talk about these things, but because they are an issue, particularly for fiction, uh, that's why we're doing uh, this episode now. We are concerned about drift. So are so many other fans and authors and publishers we've heard from, by the way. It's not just us uh, being concerned about it. It's not a huge problem yet for the Christian fantasy community, but this is just the time to talk about it because it's not yet. Right. And I I think about this a lot because I this is an area that's been so captured in the arts by the left. And it's, it, I mean, it's an area where People who, who are thinking Christianly, thinking conservatively, need to be speaking into it artistically. Like, I mean, that's we we desperately need better and more truthful art around this. But it's this catch twenty two where, like, okay, uh, once once you make it a little bit creatively and you start to have a little bit of a creative platform, it's like the only way that you can keep it is by not talking about this stuff. And yet this is exactly the stuff that needs to be talked about. And so it's really hard even, even to do nonfiction work around this, like e- even to, you know, to, to, make, to make a movie that, that you know, talked honestly about some, some, somebody who was gay and fell away, but then, then maybe it turned into a, a, a redemptive ending, you know, but it's like, it's really hard to just find the, the audience for that kind of thing. It's so frustrating because it's like, so then what, what are we saying that we're just going to give up? Like, we're just going to let the left keep this territory, you know, is there never going to be anyone speaking into it? But as I think about how this works, the infrastructure of this stuff, it's, it's a real pickle that Christian creatives are in. You know, I was thinking earlier about what are, what have been the media portrayals of gay characters? So I'm, I'm thinking of television movies and books. Um, I think for a long time, it was just the funny side character. I can think of a lot of sitcoms where this was the case. The best friend, um, yeah, the yeah, the best friend, friend the, just the funny guy, and that kind of disarms you, right? It's yeah, uh, but you uh, like him, right? Right. You right. you don't want to you don't want to make this guy sad, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. More recently, it's been the tragic uh, kind of character. So this is a lot of shows coming out from Apple TV Plus, where this way, uh, particularly for all mankind, because it deals with like the '60s and the '70s. Uh, Mad Men also kind of had this, like a character that just gets fired after it's found out that he's gay. Um, so that that's a big theme. Of course, that's the whole like they're victims being oppressed, and we need to tear down the systems of oppression. 
a few times I've seen the kind of the quiet hero. So I, I'm thinking of uh, Hugh Howey's book, Halfway Home. Uh, wonderful book. I've, I really like that book, but that that's, you know, the, the main emphasis. And he even talks about that in the, in the Ford or the, you know, the, the notes at the end or something about why he wrote um, a, a heroic, you know, gay character, not just sympathetic, not just tragic. Um, what's very rare, and I'm not saying we need to do this. I'm just observing this. What's very rare is to see a gay, gay character who's the villain. Um, the only one I could think of off the top of my head was the talented Mr. Ripley with Matt Damon. And that completely fell off the radar after that came out. And and he's not really like an openly gay character, which is also interesting. It's sort of the more closeted gay character, but that seems very rare. Well, the, the one exception might be um, a, a sort of gay coded priest or pastor. Okay. That could work because but, it's, well, he's it's only villainous be, because he's suppressed yeah. well, or he's a villain. Uh, it's okay to paint him as the villain because he's from a disfavored class, you know? Yeah. A, and, and you know, priest. Yeah. The, I was surprised. The, 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 uh, the creepy, you know, pre, priest who, who would rail against gay stuff, but actually yeah. he's kind of pervy well, because himself. He's you know? Compensating. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, I will say uh, spoilers for any gamers out there, but the, uh, the video game horizon forbidden West has a very, interesting plot twist uh, where someone who would identify as a certain thing does turn out to be the villain and in fact her villainy is motivated by that attraction i was surprised it was kind of based and by then i just leveled up so much on side quests that the boss fight wasn't even all that impressive <laughs> but it was a good story what do you think of did either of you see the movie tar um, i've heard of this but because it was oscar nominated no <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 looked, it didn't look like exactly my cup of tea, but I was sort of intrigued by it for this reason. Was that the one with um, Gal- Galadriel as uh, yes, the, the yes, music Kate, teacher? Kate I, I saw okay. the clip. Kate yeah. She's yeah, a, we yeah, all saw she, the clip. There's probably more to the movie than just the clip. Yeah, there, well, there's a lot more. And, so, so, and it's relevant to what Zach is raising here because she's this brilliant conductor, uh, you know, has celebrated career, but she's also a lesbian and she gets me tooed. Uh, so it's a lesbian Me Too story, essentially, and canceled. And so, you know, it's it's really interesting. I mean, it is coming at all this from a liberal perspective, but it's it's doing lots of border stocking, you know, as as Makoto was saying. Probably a little bit more of the classical cultural liberal who yeah. did try to believe in free speech uh, yes, and wouldn't right. uh, agree with all the cancel culture stuff. Okay. Yeah, except she's kind of bad. Uh, you oh. know, it's it's. Well, because she, well, she, right. So she winds up sort of being the villain of her own story, but she's such, she's such a character that there's like a little bit of a, of fan she's culture a around her. Yeah. She's so, yeah, she's sort of a likable villain. And she's, she's so larger than life and, and, you know, entertaining. That's like, you sort of love to hate her or hate to love her. Um, yeah. You know, and like, I, I think that's getting towards what I, the aesthetic I hope to see, which is gay characters that are, more human than yes. they tend to yeah. be that they're just used as props or propaganda tools. And yeah, that, that's interesting that they made the lesbian a villain, uh, but a sympathetic one. So it, again, it's, it's like, they're not totally the bad guy. And once again, I'm not saying we should make the, the villain uh, gay or something or the gay person, the villain, but you it, could, it you could say that half of, I mean, he, I, I read a piece by Andrew Sullivan about this, where he was pointing out that really, if you look back at a lot of Disney movies, um, like ha- half the villains, the voice actors knew exactly what they were doing, and and they're it, you know 
I mean, just go watch The Great Mouse Detective. I, I, I will say no more. Um, oh, you yes. know, the, <laughs> the classic uh, a overlooked uh, Disney uh, gay icon. cartoon from the 80s. Oh, really? Yeah, I, Fascinatingly. Okay. I, Radigan, yeah, really? And, it's, Voiced so Andrew, by Vincent Price? <laughs> Fascinating. It's Yeah, I mean, he totally is. I mean, really, a lot of those villains are just, you know, they're really just over the top, kind of flamboyant. Kind of stereotype, what, what, though. Yeah, what we call mm. gay coded. And right. so, it, but Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece where he was really kind of making Zach's point, I think, although from a liberal perspective, where the way Andrew was spinning this is we need to be, so, you know, gay rights, the battle has been won. You know, we, we, we no longer are actually being persecuted like we used to be. So we should feel free to play creatively now and have gay villains and explore this, this dark side, the bad gay side. Um, you know, because because it's fun and it's creative and it makes good art and it shows, you know, we're just we're humans, right? We we have the dark side and the bad side as as well as the light side. And now that we're not in a climate where we have to fight for our rights anymore, which of course, okay, there's the liberal talking. Um, but come on, guys, let's let's play. Let's let's make more art. You know. Yeah, and I, and I even think it's it's more than that that we need. It's that there's a lot of people who have same sex attraction who do not want it. Of course. And, and it, I, who, where are those stories being told? And now I, I think the, the knee jerk reaction in Christian media can be, well, okay, we need a conversion story. Then we, we need someone who came and out of this it lifestyle. All goes away. All the bad attraction goes away forever. Right. Yeah. And they never struggled with sin again because no one ever struggles with sin. After That's an over-realized eschatology. That's like a sentimentality, but I think that in the middle of that story could be very interesting. And this is this is why this is exactly where I feel like a lot more stories need to be need to be written and maybe you know maybe even really sad tragic stories right stories that are honest about that this isn't up and down it's often not usually not just to snap your fingers and and it goes away you know so um at this is where maybe we we could bring in the story of Lonnie Frisbee um because this you know as 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 I wrote about and as as we've been talking about this got glossed over in the Jesus Revolution movie for, for understandable reasons, you know, he wasn't the main character. He, you know, it's not clear that he was actually being promiscuously gay during the, the period that the film is covering. So, you know, I get it. Although I thought it was interesting that there was a title card at the end about how he died because he died of AIDS, but the title card just said that he he died in 1993 or whatever the year was. Mm. It just, just le- left it there. Simple so, version of the history, yes. Well, because and, as we were talking yeah. before the show in the pre-flight. It would have taken over the story. Then. It, it it would yeah, right, and and you know it, maybe it didn't belong at that place in the biography anyway. Which fair enough, I understand. And uh, but I did as when I wrote about this, I was thinking out loud. What if you did try to get a movie made about Lonnie Frisbee, like the real Lonnie Frisbee story? Which is you know, I don't even think you could film. You couldn't film some of it. It's just too dark and you know violent and abusive. Um, but to even to even tell something that approximated the, the true story of Lonnie Frisbee. Could it even get made? Could you, could you sell it? Who would show up to see it? Um, because it's so, it's so difficult and so messy and dark. And, you know, there, there may be, you know, I, I, I wonder if, if, if certain conservative audiences might need a little bit of a, a, a prodding here too, not, not in the same way, um, but maybe just, a recognition that life is tragic, that the tragic vision of life, 
Um, similarly, I was also thinking about, I was recently reading up on this, um, this big, I was talking, so I mentioned my mom was part of the religious right. Well, there was this guy who was a, uh, an important religious right figure with the, the Reagan administration. His name was Terry Dolan. And by day, he was out there, you know, saying all the conservative um, activist stuff and it did a lot of good work in that vein. But then by night, he, he, was, he was gay, you know, promiscuously gay. And he came from this Catholic family who absolutely did not think that that was okay and created lots of estrangement and tension. And his brother was a big time speechwriter. Um, so it was sort of like an American Brideshead Revisited story, basically. Um, so then he, he got AIDS and he died, but he was reconciled with, with his family and with God. And so, you know, it actually turned into kind of a beautiful redemption story. So I'm reading this big, long history and I'm thinking, gosh, this would make a really compelling movie, I feel like, you know, like it, it's, it's all in there. You know, the politics, the intrigue, the messiness, the, you know, accusations of hypocrisy and AIDS and all this stuff. But then there's like, there's a redemption and a reconciliation, you know, not, not that he was converted in the sense of, not being gay i mean like it's to the contrary he it's what killed him right um but i'm thinking well couldn't you make that story and i was chatting with a producer friend and he's like i don't you know i don't think anyone would would go see it who who would see it how could you make it yeah we're not thinking, ready well, for that yet I think, yeah largely. yeah exactly but that's an example of what i mean when i express frustration that this this territory has been so completely captured dominated by by leftist storytelling how would we even begin to get back there and you know a part of it may also be that christians need to get better at telling tragic stories yeah. and better at appreciating tragic stories well we need a better theology of, of tragedy largely at, yeah. which is coupled with a better theology of resurrection again we're heading toward resurrection sunday as we record and as this episode releases and in our next episode, we'll talk about resurrection in a little bit more of a fun way. Zach and I will. Uh, resurrection is key to understanding how God heals people. Uh, there's sort of this uh, diet prosperity gospel idea that you get saved and all your sin struggles go away. Or we just pretend people never had them at all. Uh, that's sentimentalism, which we talked about in episode 155, Zach and I. Uh, I don't believe that all Christian fiction should be sentimental. Uh, Christians are called to reflect reality just as much as the Bible itself does. Yes, there are happier books of the Bible, like the book of Ruth. Uh, there's a happy ending to the book of Esther where, you know, Haman gets hanged and everything gets kind of cleaned up uh, just in time for uh, the Jewish uh, festival of Purim. Uh, but then there's also some sad books, Exile, Death, Destruction, Judges 19, all of Ezekiel, all of Jeremiah, all of Samson. Lamentations, Samson. There's tragedy in the Bible. Uh, and yet now that Christ has come, we see even the tragedy more redemptively. So I, I guess I'll, I'll draw us to a close here, but here's what I would love to see from more Christian fiction in general. By that, I mean Christian-made fiction uh, and particularly Christian fantastical books. So we're talking here more of the popular level, not just art and all that. Uh, first off, uh, for me personally, I have some absolutely nots. And one of my absolutely nots is do not call good what is evil. Mention these relationships if you must, because they are real. They're happening in the world. People identify as certain things. I, I think it's appropriate for more realistic stories to reflect these in some context. But I personally will not brook propaganda about that. I, I can't. I don't even like propaganda for my own side, the stuff that I agree with. It's distasteful. 
Uh, how much less would I appreciate propaganda for a religious perspective I don't agree with? Uh, the second thing I, I would not uh, appreciate uh, in any kind of fantasy book in particular uh, is this uh, reversal of a classic fantasy trope. In the classic fantasy trope, you have the normal type character, even a fantastical creature like a hobbit or a dwarf or an elf. Like These are kind of magical creatures, but are a placeholder for the normal person. The normal person then crosses a boundary between the real world and the fantastical world, leaves the Shire, goes to Mirkwood or other uh, fantastical places in the wildlands. You have now gone from what is normal to the fantastical, and that gets you the idea that the fantastical is something that lies outside yourself. The reversal now is we're seeing lots of stories where the main character, the starting world, is already fantastical. You are, gentle reader the magical wood nymph. Uh, does that not reflect then this idea of expressive individualism, uh, the lack of character growth where you don't need to go somewhere to get your fantasy itch scratched? You already have it scratched. You already have what you need. I don't mean there's no plot or growth in these stories, but it's just it, it just illustrates how this concept can sneak into uh, a clever reversal of the trope. And now suddenly, if everything's fantastical, nothing is. I'd love to see more stories with or without actual portals into the magical world that start with the normal character who discovers the fantastical elements outside him or herself, whether it's science fiction or fantasy. Those are the kinds of stories I want to look at. The third thing that I'd love to see in Christian made fantasy is this. I do want to see uh, characters who struggle with sin, not just sexuality as sin, because some of these stories are fantastical uh, in a fantasy world. Uh, but some are more contemporary, or you got have a science fiction set on this earth, for example. I'd love to see more characters who are not magical woodland nymphs uh, or some kind of super secret, uh, you know, a tropey type wise character who has unique gifts because of this temptation. I don't want to see that so much. I, I don't want to see these people treated like kings. I would love people with certain temptations treated as suffering saints. Because yeah, there are real right. people out there, Bethel, you've met them, we've heard of them, who struggle with these temptations, whether you call it same-sex attraction, gay, trans, whatever, all these made-up new words describe real feelings, and yet there are men and women who want to love Jesus and the gospel more. They see this for what it is, uh, a result of the fall one way or another. And they want to love Jesus more than their sin. And I want our stories to honor these saints, many of whom have faced temptations and struggles that what you'd call a straight Christian will never know. Now, there's different things that all Christians face. You know, there are some people who struggle more than others. I just, I want to honor that in our stories, at least so far as Christians are making them. And so I don't believe in sweeping these issues under the rug. I believe in having it out. Uh, even in a subtler form in a, in a fantasy book, or if it's a direct uh, artwork or Christian movie or TV show, whatever, I want more of this talked about openly. We need not be embarrassed or afraid of these topics. We have the foundation of scripture and the gospel. We have our calling as stewards of creation and as evangelists and witnesses in the world. Uh, that's part of being a good public witness is being honest about these things. And I think our fiction should not be sentimentalist. It should be honest about these issues. Yeah, it, I mean, this this is its own thing, but I I wonder whether maybe Catholics are a little better at this than Protestants. Oh, theology of the body? Yeah, th there seems to be a little bit more strength in terms of physical issues uh, that Catholic theologians have developed, yeah, well, and evangelicals and, and I, are catching up. Right, and, and you know, like, 
maybe also a little bit more better at incorporating this into art. Um, because, I mean, I don't know, it, maybe it's just talked about more within Catholicism. There's, you know, more of a, a framework. Well, I mean, of course, it's talked about often in a bad way with Catholicism, with all the abuse and the corruption and stuff. Um, but there's also, a, a you know, a great tradition of the, the celibate gay Catholic saint, you know. Um, that's sort of like, it's a bit of a type or a thing in Catholicism, which I don't, I don't know that there's a similar notion of that within Protestantism. You know, the best you get a side yeah. character. If it's a, if it's an yeah. evangelical novel, that's the side character. Yeah. Uh, we do assume, I think to a fault that people are going to have families, I think understandably because of the creation mandate, uh, families are supposed to be typical, but in a broken world that doesn't always happen. And we absolutely need to have a place in our imagination for those types of heroes in reality, mm -hmm. as well as in fiction. I mentioned Samson a minute ago. I think that's a great template for stories that we could tell yeah. because th this is the original sexualityist right. um, that was constantly led astray by his own impulses and desires. Tons of tragedy happened to him, but there was redemption in the end. It's a very bittersweet redemption. Um, it, it's a, it's a tragic heroic ending, but that story we can learn so much from that. And I think that's a very easily adaptable story to a fantastical world. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. You mentioned Samson because, um, when Lonnie Frisbee died, um, Pastor Chuck Smith, who who is portrayed in Jesus Revolution and, and was, you know, the, one of the founders of the whole Calvary Chapel grassroots movement there, he preached at Frisbee's funeral and directly compared him to Samson. Oh, like, fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Like he 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 made he went there, he he made that comparison and he said, you know, Lonnie Lonnie was messed up and he, he was flawed, but God used him. Yes. So we have to hold those things together. You know, right. we kind of have to hold those things in in in, in tension. Um, it's it's so, but yeah, and and like I'm going back to that that story about the um the Reagan aide, political guy who who got AIDS and died, but he came from this Catholic family. After he died, people tried to sort of make hay out of it, and you know, there's an article about AIDS in the time of Reagan or whatever that outed him. And so his family was furious about that. And, and his brother wrote this sort of magnificent tirade uh, against the, the, the media for doing that. And it, but it was, it's, it's beautiful because I've read bits of what his brother wrote. And he's saying, you know, it, it was an honor to, to fight for my brother's life. It was an honor to accompany him in death and, and for us to be, to be reconciled. And he was like our, Sebastian and Sebastian's the character in, in Brideshead Revisited. You know, it's wonderful miniseries with Jeremy Irons and uh, Anthony Andrews. Everyone should go watch it, by the way. Where you know he's he's playing around and his Catholic family doesn't approve, and he just kind of drifts off and does his thing because he's really weak-willed that way. But by the end, you kind of hear about it off-screen. But there's an implication that he did sort of make his way back to the church and and did end up confessing and, and repenting and, and being reconciled so um so that goes back to what i mean when i, I say I, th I think you, you've got some maybe better literary precedent there um, in the catholic literature for that sort of a journey um that sort of a story and uh you know we we just need more protestants making art this is my little uh yeah make more art protestants <laughs> yes. making good art that doesn't uh, yeah, right, just intend right. to convert the viewer uh, but intends to glorify god in all things I, I like to say based on the westminster 
shorter catechism that the chief end of a creative work, a story, is not just to get people saved. It's not just to love people. Uh, it's not just to teach us some morality or entertain us. Uh, the chief end of anything a Christian is doing ought to be to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So it's not just about sacrifice or loving people. It is about obedience to God, joyful obedience, because it is fun. It makes us happy ultimately to reflect God's image back to him. And that's why we also believe in holiness. That's why we believe in obedience. I'll draw us to a close. Uh, just First uh, John 2 came to mind uh, here, uh, starting with just the first few verses of that chapter. It's just kind of a, a very gentle warning from the apostle whom Jesus loved about what it means to love God and know God. The apostle John writes, quote, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. End quote. Bethel, you have beautiful. a lot of wisdom. I know. I'm glad. I, I wish I would wrote it. No, that was the apostle whom Jesus well, loved. And, and part, God part, is of, love. part of that, actually, that first part, and he is the propitiation for our sins. So that, that bit I heard every week growing up as part of the Anglican liturgy. Um, that's, that's, that's part of the, what we read every week in the service. So you, you just brought some memories back. Yeah, Stephen, for those for unfamiliar with the word propitiation, uh, we reform <laughs> types love saying that word because it's a big shiny word, roughly atoning sacrifice. Uh, the NIV version of that captures that pretty well. Uh, it is about Christ's sacrifice, not ours. He is the hero. We are not. Uh, we are but faithful stewards of what he's given us, both creative gifts and the gospel to share. Uh, Bethel, where can folks keep track of how you are exploring uh, these issues related to the gospel at all these various uh, medias? All links in the show notes, too. So um, my, my Twitter is at bmcgroovy. And so it's, you know, it's the word, it's the word groovy, but using my, my name. Yeah. G-R-E-W-V-Y. Uh, now I see it. I wonder what that was it. doing there. Yeah. Now it you see it. has to be it. said out loud. I got it. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, so I, I, I tweet way more than is good for my health. I've played with the <laughs> idea of, of deactivating for a month or so. So, you know, um, but if I do deactivate my Twitter at any point, you can still keep up with what I write on my Substack, which is titled, as these things are, bethelmacrew.substack.com. Um, also, I, I tend to write semi-regularly at World Opinions, and um, that tends to be where, where I'll put more Christian culture related stuff. I, I sort of like to use my Substack for things that'll hit a broader audience because I've, I'm blessed to have a, an eclectic readership there. Um, you know, everyone from the homeschooling moms back home to Andrew Sullivan. So I, that's kind of cool. Um, so I, I, sometimes I tend to save the more, you know, evangelical church culture, sexualityism stuff for either tweeting. I, I just tweet whole threads sometimes. Um, or, or an outlet like, like world opinions. And so, but the Twitter is where I, I tweet out all my many and sundry writings. So that, that's where you can follow me. We are so glad to have you back in the studio, uh, after way back on episode 88, I'm glad the DeLorean is still working. Uh, now I guess it's time for you to step back in and uh, journey back to those religious right days from whence you came. So <laughs> thank Indeed. you so much for making Indeed. the journey. 
Thank you for having me. It's Thanks for blast. joining us. Our appreciation to Bethel for stopping by and sharing with us uh, what she's been doing on her mission. Let's stop by the Lorehaven mission update. We have a lot of things going on at lorehaven.com. Free to subscribe to find the best Christian-made fantasy and explore that for God's glory. Uh, Over the last week or so, I've been working on uh, some upgraded uh, menu options, a bit of a web design update there. Uh, But it would all be designed uh, when and if it goes into effect uh, this spring uh, to help families and particular types of readers find the best kinds of Christian-made fantasy that we've been reviewing and listing at Lorehaven. One of those would be uh, Tisha Messing's new article, How to Disciple Your Kids with Dangerous Books. That was a really popular one last week, and we hope to have more like it. Uh, With titles like that, not just to uh, soften the blow of dangerous books, but to help you, if you're a parent, equip your children to discern and engage these books. Uh, with wisdom uh, from the perspective of a Christian worldview, while also protecting them from ideas they're not quite ready for. Uh, This week, Lord willing, uh, we're having a new article about how Christian fans can fight the malaise of popular culture. If you get really annoyed with that particular superhero movie that just isn't cutting it anymore, uh, maybe it's time to use Bethel's DeLorean on loan and go back to the past and find some good Christian made and other stories from yesteryear. Uh, last week and this week, uh, we are focusing on finding great newer middle grade fantasy books uh, written by Christians. Uh, it's just sort of a coincidence that the reviews have happened that way. You can subscribe free and get those new reviews every time we post them on Fridays. You can also join the Lorehaven Guild for our monthly book quests. It's specifically for those who want to enjoy Christian made fantasy, is what we're doing a new monthly book quest. We just finished up uh, the Charles Williams classic War in Heaven. Uh, Now we're going to go back a few grade levels and uh, read a YA dystopian by Bradley Caffey. Uh, Tisha Messing is leading that quest as the guild master. That book is called The Chase. It's got kids. It's got laws. It's got an evil government. It's got everything you need in a uh, healthy dystopian society, healthy to explore anyway, not healthy to live under. So maybe reading more of these books can help us head off some of those uh, problems culturally in real life. We got some uh, bleeping, blooping control panels uh, lit up there over there at the comm station. Zach, uh, what did uh, what did we get after our last episode about sentimentalism? Yeah, this was a great note from James A. Kugler. He wrote a note about the episode 155 about sentimentalism. And he starts off by talking about how Thomas Kincaid came from an era where there was not as much emphasis on the new earth as, as much on the new heavens. And uh, he said our discussion about toxic empathy was very helpful to help protect him from getting taken emotionally hostage. So I was glad to hear that. And then he says, um, another thing I'd like to add to the conversation on sentimentality is a more subtle form I found in Christian fiction, where the protagonist, even if non-Christian, is essentially sinless. I don't know whether this is done for clean marketing purposes or unintentionally or what, but I know this has been harmful for me as a Christian. Even after my conversion and rededication, I've struggled with habitual sin. I'm not surrendering to it. I'm not excusing it. I'm just simply struggling. And I wonder why so many protagonists in Christian fiction so often seem so naturally noble. Is that what reflects the majority of people, Christian or not? Why don't we see more characters in Christian fiction struggling with the vice or the evil within themselves? Is it possible that these portrayals might force us to confront that we're not only facing the monster outside, but the one within. One of the biggest dangers of sentimentality is it makes a story in life seem so low stakes. Like if the protagonist is defeated, 
It's okay, because he's saved and going to heaven anyway. Yet, even if this may be true in reality or in fiction, his defeat will not be without consequence. He may be saved and go to heaven, but what if him dying brings about the death of others who are not saved and go to hell? End quote. Man, that is a very profound thought That's there, some quality James. content there, James. Per- perfectly ties in what we're saying, and that is exactly you know, what we want to see explored better in Christian fiction. And I think, man, I, I think the sky is the limit. I think we just got to be brave, which is another big theme of this episode. We have to take on these issues, not worry about the uh, the Twitter troll farms that are going to come after us or whatever. Um, just uh, just tell the truth and make it beautiful and entrust it to God. Next on Fantastical Truth, after all this talk about fantastical foes and their evil ways that lead to death, who's ready for some new life and victory? I sure am. And thank God, as we record and release this episode, we are moving into what Christians historically have called Holy Week, which helps us remember not only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but also his resurrection, the same resurrection that he has promised for all who receive him. Before on Fantastical Truth, we've explored epic resurrection ideas, new heavens and new earth, recovering from grief and all of that. But we haven't yet asked questions like, do we get to fly? Could we apparate from place to place? Could we dive underwater for hours? not even need oxygen? Will we get superpowers after the resurrection? Well, we will explore that on our next episode. We're going to have some fun, but also try to stay as theologically grounded as possible. Meanwhile, we hope it did not get too hot in here, but we recognize it probably did. We also hope that we were with this topic as theologically grounded as possible. Whatever fantastical foe that you are facing, whether it's deconstructionism or sentimentalism or even sexualityism, we hope that you won't just make it all about the ism. There are so many false ideas out there in reality as in fiction. Instead, run to your real savior, Jesus Christ. Don't try to be a hero. Don't even try to get friends to be heroes with. It is Jesus Christ who is the hero. He will wipe away not every suffering that we have now, but he will eventually wipe away every tear in the new heavens and new earth. And that is our hope in Holy Week and any other week as we continue to seek and find Christ's fantastical truth. <laughs>